If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the final word story time. Adam Collins with you, Jeff Lemon with me. Hello, Jeff. You're on that balcony in Brisbane again. It looks delightful. It is delightful. It's it's a, a nice mild evening out here. I've got this mental uh, little fritz where every time I hear story time, I hear it to the tune of Homer saying dental plan. Story time. Lisa needs braces. Lisa needs braces. Um, <laughs> uh, you ruined my train of thought. But uh, yeah, so that's that happens at the start of this show every week. And I just thought I'd let people know so that they can hear that too. You are still in Brisbane having called the third and final one day international between Australia's women and New Zealand's women uh, yesterday I think it was the world record streak continues uh, for that remarkable team we'll talk more about that on the weekly show on Monday as we will uh, the changes to the 100 which came out last night which are complicated but worth going into uh, we'll talk more about the IPL as well not least Nicholas Puran's remarkable hand last night uh, but today Jeff or tonight in your case it's all about time for some nerd pledge yes it's the game of nerds the game of pledges the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us an 
number of dollars and cents that equates to a cricketing number and we have to work out what the number is, what that means. And and on Storytime, we work out what it means historically, what it means in context. It's not just about this number is this reference. It's let's tell you the tales around that reference. And my Lord, do we have some detail to go into today. <laughs> we have spent many, many hours today in the lead up, swapping notes back and forth, having calls, having chats. Uh, I think we've solved a fair bit of stuff and we've also had some magnificent crowd work where some of the more difficult numbers have been solved by listeners as well so listen out plenty of references to come the first thing we'll do is look at some new numbers some numbers that people have sent in a a few weeks ago which have made their way to the top of the list and the first of those is from james murray wood and that number is six dollars forty two now Adam, 642. Normally I like to throw the number to you first, but I need to tell you something about 642 because this is great. Uh, I know I know you like to talk about Slasher Mackay, Ken Slasher Mackay. Everybody does purely because his nickname was great and saying Slasher Mackay sounds very sort of pleasing on, on the tongue, on the tonsils. Mm. Also that he was a Queenslander and, you know, slashing the, the sugar cane down with a machete is something we associate with Queensland. Known as an eccentric sort of left-handed weirdo blocker with a, a strange action who, who just <laughs> did nothing but blunt the ball out. Uh, more of a match saver than a match winner was one description I read. But also a useful right arm medium swing bowler and took a career best of 6 for 42 against Pakistan in Dhaka. And those were in the days when Dhaka was counted as being part of Pakistan before the division into Bangladesh and when there was East Pakistan and West Pakistan and all that kind of nonsense that the British Empire made happen around the world by just randomly drawing lines on maps. And so in, what was it, 1950-whatever, <laughs> that's when Slasher Mackay took six for 42, which I didn't know happened, but he took 50 test wickets in like 27 tests. So a, a pretty useful bowler and that was his best bowling performance, six for 42. Very nice place to start, Jeff, with uh, with Slasher Mackay. I neglected to mention in the intro and I should say here before going any further that if you stick around to the end of story time, you can indulge in our long conversation with Jared Waitley from going on two and a half years ago now, something like that from Port Elizabeth uh, during the ill-fated 2018 uh, test series between Australia and South Africa. That was one of the best interviews I think we've ever done on the show. One of the first ones as well, one of the first sort of long-form chats that we had through that long summer of 1718, the tail end of it there in South Africa. It's probably the longest too. So if you looked at the episode length today and you were like, holy shit, how am I going to listen to all of this? The interview takes up a lot of that. So it's not going to be all us talking about East Pakistan. Uh, but I would like to note that Slash Mackay got out Hanif Muhammad in the first innings, which is no mean feat. You know, the guy who made 499 in first-class test cricket. And he got out Duncan Sharp in the second innings, who's the answer to one of Jim Maxwell's favourite trivia questions about uh, a player who did X, Y and Z for Pakistan. Um, and people aren't generally expecting to find the name Duncan Sharp in the Pakistan eleven, uh, but he was a, a Anglo-Pakistani origin and did play in that series. Uh, Jeff, a, a couple of uh, bits and pieces that I quite like about 642. Uh, thanks to James Murray Wood for such a generous contribution, I should add. You know how in the past I've noted that I find it remarkable when looking through cricket stats that nothing will happen and it'll happen twice in quick succession? Mm-hmm. Well, the score 642 uh, for into that category. It was never made in Test cricket until November of 2009 when India made it against Sri Lanka. And then nine months later, Sri Lanka made it against India, uh, where Sukumar wow. Sangakkara 
made 219, the only two times in Test cricket that score has been made by a team, and they happened within nine months of each other nine involving the later. same two teams. Well, surprise, surprise. So what you're saying is that in November 2009, India got Sri Lanka pregnant with 642, and nine months later, <laughs> Sri Lanka gave birth to 642. Amazing. What a lovely way to express it. One other place I'll quickly take this, which won't be... I'm sure what James Murray would was steering at with his 642, but I'll tell be. you anyway. Uh, Fred Root bowled 642 deliveries for England in three tests during the 1926 Ashes series. Okay. He did pretty well with his medium pace. His career was interrupted by the war. He was injured Which during war? the First World War. And, uh, the First mm. World War. Uh, and then he came back and uh, continued his first-class career. Finally got an opportunity to play for England in 1926, albeit uh, belatedly picked up eight wickets in... Uh, those three tests at 24. He actually was dropped for the final test where uh, famously Wilfred Rhodes was brought back as the deadlock breaker. So it was nil all going into the fifth and final test at the Oval and Rhodes was brought back out of retirement for, well not retirement but he hadn't played for England I don't think since 1921. Rhodes wins the game in the urn uh, for England there at the Oval. But Root would have played earlier if not for the fact that he had a bad gentleman versus players game. He would have gone on the previous Ashes tour. He was very much a player and that was summed up well in a piece of writing that Gideon is responsible for which shows up on, on Fred Root's Wikipedia page. I'm not sure whether these are Gideon's words but this is the, the summary on there. His character may be summed up by an event in a match against Glamorgan. The batsman had collided mid-pitch and the ball was returned to Root, the bowler. Root didn't break the stumps as both batsmen seemed injured. An amateur repeatedly shouted, break the wicket, Fred, break the wicket, until Root said, if you want to run him out, here's the ball, you can come and do it. And the amateur responded with the words, oh, I'm an amateur, I can't do such a thing. <laughs> quite, like, quite like that. Uh, England. And, and there was a, a nice little postscript as well. Well, not nice little, a postscript. And so Fred Root died in Wolverhampton in 1954. It was in Wolverhampton in 1954 where my grandfather was court-martialed. So, hooray for Wolverhampton wow. in 1954. <laughs> okay. Uh, was your granddad by any chance court-martialed for murdering Fred Root? No, no. He was court-martialed for meeting my grandmother in 1945 and saying he'd had enough in the military after 15 years and that was that and changed his name and uh, went into hiding in North Wales at the very end of the war. A bad time to go AWOL, really. Mm. But anyway, it caught up with him about 10 years later uh, and that's when... Uh, that blew up all in Wolverhampton, but that was the year as well where where Fred Root, uh, where Fred Root's life ended. But he did bowl 642 balls in Test cricket for England. <laughs> Thank you. There uh, you go. Your, your grandfather, the true Wolverhampton wanderer if you will. So <laughs> thank you to James Murray Wood. Number number two comes in from Richard L. The number was $3.27. And the clue, sometimes you see a clue and you think, oh, this is helpful. And sometimes you see a clue and you think, oh, God, <laughs> this is going to involve some work. The clue was, this is the strike rate of a match in America. That's it. That's all we had. What did you make of that, Adam? Well, I just thought, well, look, what do we know about cricket in America? Um, we know that they occasionally play T20s at Lauderhill, uh, and some of them have been high scoring. One in particular in 2016 uh, yep. between the Windies and India, where the Windies made 245, India made 244 in reply. It was the highest scoring uh, T20 international at the time. I had a look at that. There were 66 boundaries scored in the 240 deliveries. I thought maybe that'll somehow tie in, but that's 27.5%. Uh, certainly doesn't quite meet that mm -hmm. measure of a strike rate that uh, that Richard L was, was noting. So I left it there and thought I'd handball it over to you, Jeff. 
I also had a look when he was saying strike rate, I was thinking maybe you mean economy rate. And so I found a couple of matches where the USA were really bad against teams like Namibia scoring through an ODI at something like three runs and over to see if I could find a match where cumulatively the two teams went at 3.27 and over. And there are a couple that are very close, but not quite, you know, that are within a tenth of a run either side of that number, but they weren't on the 3.27. What I Mm. did find, though, was if we were looking at ratios, and now, I mean, look... This could mean, because strike rate could mean in terms of scoring runs, or I suppose it could mean a bowler who who took a a ball, a wicket every 3.27 balls, but I'm not sure how that would be mathematically possible. However, over a period of time, uh, I'd I'd done a fair bit of looking around. I looked at the, the early, there's the first international cricket match between Canada and the USA, but we don't have the number of overs bold in that match except for the first innings um it was dross canada made 85 in the first innings and still won neither team could make any runs but here's what i did find a couple of years ago in south africa a a bowler a right arm medium pacer debuted down in south africa playing for southwestern districts his name is herschel america Spelt as you would imagine, Herschel, (laughs) not like Herschel Gibbs, but H-E-R-S-H-E-L-L, America. Wonderful name. Herschel America has played a dozen first-class matches. In those first-class matches, he goes at an economy rate of 3.27 runs per over. That's a strike rate of 3.27 involving matches in America. Herschel, maybe. I don't know how you do it, Jeff, but that is so good. Uh, Well... (laughs) Uh, if it isn't that, a lot of looking. Lie to us. Well, <laughs> yes. Here's the thing: if that's if that's not it, lie to us. Herschel just America. Tell us that he's your man. You've got it right that it's Herschel America. That's who you were thinking about all along. That'll make Jeff's weekend. And <laughs> what's more, it deserves to. He's done the yards there. Thank you, Richard, for three to seven. Next, Jeff, mm-hmm. one dollar sixty-one. Jack Goff. one six one. I think it's a number you're going to have in hand. It's got to be. Watto, surely, 161. Look, after the 2010-11 Ashes in Australia, you know, England England got home by a nose. Australia were pretty down at, at the end of that. Then they came out in the first one day, they were chasing 294, which was, you know, even 10 years ago was a bigger score than it is now. And the maligned, the criticised, the unloved Shane Robert Watson peels off 161, unbeaten, opening the batting to get them a win and they go on to win that series 6-1 the ODIs in 2010-11 that was the real quiz kettle over the pub <laughs> but we know we know who won the series that mattered 6-1 in the ODIs Watto surely surely it can't be anything else there's some great other options of course there's uh, Michael Clark's epic at Cape Town that was 1-6-1 with the broken shoulder which I wrote about when he retired for the Wisden Almanac it was Ian Healy's highest score of course one of his two centuries at the Gabba Emily Drum back when women got to play test matches uh, in 1995 for New Zealand against Australia made that in the first innings that was a draw it's also how many test matches that Alistair Cook played consecutively of course Miss mm-hmm. Barr Al-Huck's highest score in test cricket was 1-6-1 not out I thought you'd like to know Jeff but I'm going to go to one last player who also had a high score of 161 and that's the great Australian captain Jeff Bill Woodfull 
I'm just punching myself over the heart at the moment. <laughs> exactly, as you should, as you should. So his high score, I thought you'd like this, Jeff. It came in the uh, series or the summer of 1931-32 at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, and it's a test not too dissimilar to the one at Melbourne in 1936. By that I mean Australia were out cheaply in the first innings, all out for 198. South Africa pile on a big lead. They make 358 in their first innings. But the second time around, Bradman, 167. Woodfall, 161. Australia make 554, setting South Africa 395 in the fourth innings, and they fall well short. They're all out for 225. So a massive turnaround, just as it would be in 1936-37 at the same ground against England in that Ashes test. But the highest score ever made in, in test cricket for Bill Woodfall, and it put Australia 3-0 up in the series, a come-from-behind victory. 161, Jack Goff. Next number on our list comes from Alex Brown, not the media person in charge at Cricket Australia, but a different Alex Brown. $2.36 is the number. Alex Brown, a regular correspondent of ours on internet platforms. What do you think, Adam? Well, uh, well first of all, I, I wonder whether it was the other Alex Brown <laughs> to begin. I know Alex listens to the show as well. If you're listening, Brownie, hi. But uh, this Alex Brown, the, the internet's Alex Brown. Oh, I initially thought maybe Abdul Qadir or Alec Bedsa. They both picked up 236 test wickets. But then again, I didn't see the clue and you did. Well, it wasn't a clue, but it was a deduction because Alex Brown online has the word Kiwi in his Twitter handle, which I and, and often talks about New Zealand, which I take to mean that Alex Brown is a New Zealander. So I was looking for New Zealand adjacent things to 236 of which there are a few uh, including that that one day where Tom Latham batted through when New Zealand won without losing a wicket one of the few times that's happened when they made 236 uh, in the opening partnership however more famously and infamously than that 236 is the score that New Zealand were chasing in 1981 on the 1st of February in a game that ended with an underarm delivery and a six-run <laughs> win to Australia. And it's interesting looking back at that scorecard and, and realising that Greg Chappell, very much the villain of the piece for ordering the underarm ball, made 90 in that game and also bowled 10 overs and took three for 43. So otherwise a pretty handy contribution in what would have been an Australian win. Also, Trevor Chappell picked up two wickets right at the death, got Richard Hadley out and, and an, another one right at the end to peg New Zealand back. And so, again, maybe it was a bit rude to ask him to bowl the underarm when he was actually bowling pretty well and might have picked up another pole at the end. But yeah, 236 for, for someone with an interest in New Zealand cricket surely can't be anything else but the underarm target. It has to be. It has to be. Thank you, Alex Brown. Thank you both, Alex Browns. $2.46 is our next patron number. It's from Mark Sands. Uh, Jeff, where I started with this was with Graham Gath McKenzie. Hmm. I like that we went from 236 to 246, so that's where we are. If you're confused, we're now on 246. Yes, we're advancing in 10s. 256 will be next. Garth McKenzie, I kind of think of him as the sort of forgotten Australian spearhead. Of, of course, played through a pretty turgid era, the 1960s, debuting in 61 and playing through until 1971. But he spans Davis and Lilly. He played with both of them. He was the attack leader between times. But he takes 246 wickets, including... Five on Dubu in the famous Battle of the Ridge at Lords in 1961. So again, you know, taking five on Dubu at Lords, not, no mean feat. He was only 19 years old at the time, picking up Ted Dexter and Peter May in that innings. Uh, but yeah, he, he goes on and has a fantastic Ashes series in 1964, taking 29 wickets, which uh, was the equal most for an Australian bowler at the time with Clary Grimmett, your man yes. Clary, from yes. back in 1930. 
it was ultimately England where he returned and became... I find this an interesting part of the McKenzie story. It, it wasn't common for Australian professional cricketers. Of course, there weren't that many of them to go and be pros in England in the county championship. But he was a pioneer in that respect and played for Leicestershire for a number of years, took over 400 wickets and, and won the county championship with them in 1975. But between times, his international career, I think, ended prematurely. I think most would conclude in, in the Ashes series of 1970-71, uh, John Snow hit him in the head at Sydney with a bouncer. Because it was a seven-test match series, though, he had enough time to play a tour game, break Jeff Boycott's arm, and then get available, fit and available for selection for the seventh and final test, which I think was also at Sydney, if memory serves me correctly. But uh, he wasn't picked, he was overlooked. And age 29, that was it. Stuck on 246 test wickets. Of course, the record uh, was Richie Benno's 248. So he's ever so close to holding that title for, for a little while. But uh, in the end, 246 wickets at 29 always appears on those charts, Jeff, which we track when, I mean, in recent years, Nathan Lyon. But uh, before that, when bowlers are going up through the highest wicket takers ever, he, he's always there. But I feel as though out of anyone that's taken that many wickets, he's the bowler we perhaps know least about. Yeah. He ended up making a, a return to, to the Australian Colours in 1977 when uh, the World Series cricket caravan rolled around and ended up finishing his professional career in South Africa, which, I mean, of course, has, has challenges now looking back at it retrospectively. But I think from his perspective, a professional was a professional was a professional and he, his job was to, to play for as long as he could. And, and one other bit of um, trivia here for you, Jeff. He, he, as a bowler, um, no one has had, well, no one has affected um, four hit-wicket dismissals in Test cricket apart from McKenzie, which I thought you'd quite like. I love that. I love hit-wicket dismissals. Some of the great trivia. It's a real shame that handled the ball has been taken out of the game and, and just lumped in with obstructing the field. It, it's much, it's a less rich tapestry. Where I went for 246 was way more specific and definitely not the answer, but it was funny. Earlier this year, in, in March, just before cricket got cancelled, there was a crazy game uh, when the West Indies were touring Sri Lanka and the Sri Lankans made 307 and the Windies were were barrelling along, you know, big runs from the top order and then started having one of those collapsos and there was this manic ending session, which I remember seeing where Fabian Allen, who's more, more of an off-spinner, bats at seven, um, just started going absolutely nuts down the order, trying to win it before everyone got out at the other end, basically and made 37 from 15 balls to get them within one six of the win, and then he got out in the last over. Uh, but 37 from 15 balls, Adam, is a strike rate of 246 for the innings, 246. <laughs> so Fabian Allen, that's my definitely wrong suggestion. Thanks to Mark Sands for that one. Our next new number from Divij Sinha is $1.33. 133 this this I reckon, Adam, is Vijay Mandraka, the the father of Sanjay, uh, as far as commentary goes, for better or for worse, um, given the reactions that some people have online to poor old Sanjay Mandraka. Uh, Vijay Mandraka was a fine player of fast bowling, and 133 is the score that he made in his very first Test innings in England when he was very young, only 
maybe 20 or 21 years of age and it was the early 1950s so he was playing against Alec Bedser, Fred Truman and uh, Jim Laker and peeled off 133 when no one made any other runs basically. Uh, Hazare made a few in the first innings and even Mandrake got a, a Golden Globe in the second dig and they lost but still that innings lives long in the memory for for those who, who saw it or heard it or read about it at the time and uh, it's in the record book still. There are a few good double-ups as well with 133. So Dom Sibley and Rory Burns, England's current openers, have both made 133s. Dave Warner and Steve Smith have both made 133s. Mike Hussey made two of them. And there are also scores of 133 for some of our recent final word favourites in Charlie McCartney, Warwick Armstrong and Bill Brown, who is the guy who was run out by Vinu Mancad at the non-striker's end. Good sleuthing there, Jeff. Uh, for me, uh, just a quick shout-out to Tim Wall, who was the 133rd Australian man to play Test cricket. He played 18 Test matches as a fast bowler between uh, 1929 and 1934. He debuted in the final Test of that 28-29 series where England thrashed Australia, and he picked up eight wickets in the match, including Hammond uh, both times. So there were kind of green shoots for him as the prospective uh, attack leader into the future. But his career never really reached those heights. He had solid tours of England and played in successful teams, but he's most well-known for what he did at domestic level for South Australia against New South Wales in 1933. He picked up 10 for 36, which is the best haul for any bowler in professional cricket in Australia, ever. Only three players have taken tempers in the shield, but his 10 for 36 is the most frugal of them. It included a spell of 9 for 5 after lunch uh, that day against New South Wales, who, I should note, uh, actually went on and still won the game after they were all out for 133, uh, and Wall takes his 10 for 36 the first time around. New South Wales still win by 98 runs. So uh, so a, a good individual performance. No, good, brilliant, perfect individual performance uh, for a man who played 18 test matches, but in a losing side that week, remarkably. Everybody in the outer was singing, all in all, it's just a... Another wicket for Wall. Those are the end. That are the end. That is the end. Those are the end. Those will be the end of our new numbers for Nerd Pledge on this show. If you'd like to send us one, you go to patreon.com slash the final word and you can sign up there and send us a number and it will go onto the list. We also have a couple of Julio pledges uh, for those pledgers who do not get into nerdery but just want to get in and out with a, a slick, clean, straight, normal uh, contribution. So thank you to Pete, to Simon Clissold and to Ian Repper. Ian Repper resent uh, who are supporting the final word as well. We love you and appreciate you all. Now we've got to look back at some of the numbers we haven't got right in the previous weeks. We're not perfect. We've never claimed to be. Uh, we we are only giving you some of the numbers. Now Connor Prendergast is the first one through, which in retrospect should have been a giveaway. It does sound a bit Irish. Three dollars and seven cents. We were talking about. Julian Wiener a lot because why not um, and Bob Cowper but Connor sent us a hint which was just an emoji of a shamrock which doesn't really leave much to the imagination does it Adam? No it doesn't and there's a couple of good 307s for Ireland in, in World Cup so they made 
307 to chase down uh, Holland's score of 306 in the 2011 World Cup, which in itself was significant. But for that generation of players, they, they often talk about their victory against the West Indies at the 2015 World Cup as being the kind of high point for them in that, yes, they, they, they won famously against Pakistan in 2007 on St. Patrick's Day. We talk about that all the time. Yes, they knock off England at the Chinnaswamy, the Kevin O'Brien miracle. But in 2015, it wasn't the fact that it wasn't a surprise that they beat the West Indies and they chased down, um, well, they made 307 batting second. I think their target was 305. Mm. Um, it was just expected that they would be able to do such a thing. And that's why that generation feel particularly proud of that campaign. So out of that 307, Paul Sterling was mad of the match for 92. And then Niall O'Brien, who I was working with a couple of weeks ago on the on the uh, Bob Willis trophy final, he made 79 not out off 60 balls. They also beat... Zimbabwe and the UAE in that campaign, which should have been enough for a quarter-final berth, but uh, the Windies ruined it for them by beating Pakistan and kind of stuffing up that group. You know, Pool B, I think it was, from memory, and it meant that they needed to beat Pakistan on the final day of the of the pool stage, and they were unable to do so at Adelaide Oval despite making about 280 or 290 or something like that. It wasn't quite enough to knock off uh, Pakistan. So in the end, Ireland didn't make it through to the final eight of that competition, but they did beat the West Indies by chasing down the 305, making 307, in one of their finest days. That is the 307 of Connor Prendergast. Matt Wust, correctly pronounced, aka Fake Patch Clap, sent through $7.69. Uh, we were looking at Steve Smith's 769 runs in a series against India. Matt replied that he's trying to keep his guesses spread between the men's and women's games and that was enough of a giveaway and I'm absolutely filthy that we didn't get this one in the end because these two numbers went around. I was watching this number all through the season where Elise Perry had made 777 in the Big Bash a couple of seasons ago and then last season Sophie Devine was chasing it and chasing it and chasing it and in the end was out cheaply in the final eight runs short of beating that target. Yeah, and that also folds into what Matt said uh, in his secondary clue last week. He said then that eight more runs would have been perfect. Well, of course, had Sophie Devine made eight runs in that final, or eight more runs in that final, it would have been 7-7-7 seven, seven, seven apiece with her and Perry from the season before. So that puts a nice bow on top of 7-69. Thank you, Matt Wust, for your support throughout. Wayne Holloway with the 143. I'm taking this on notice. I've been having a look at this today um if you can hear like a water feature in the background by the way that's just the extremely huge dog drinking out of a bowl next to me where i'm currently living uh, there's a dog which is of a breed called a Leonberger, which were apparently originally crosses between a saint bernard and a newfoundland and this dog is so tall that it can stand on its hind feet and put its paws on my shoulders and i'm six foot five it's a bear like it's actually living with a bear and when he drinks water, it's extremely loud. So I just thought I'd let you know that that's what's going on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, like, exfoliating or something during the show. Anyway, Wayne Holloway, 143. We're going to come back to this next weekend because, look, I've been putting the time into it and I haven't got there. I haven't made the connections between Maple Syrup, Anderson Cummins, Lance Gibbs, Dennis Lilly, wherever else it is that I need to go for this. So... Uh, I plead your patience. Uh, so we will look next at the 677 that came in from George Norman, Adam. We, we were looking at Jack Gregory. We were looking at Kyle Abbott. So we were looking at 6477. 
And George loved that. He enjoyed the guesswork. He enjoyed the stories. But he wanted to uh, add that his number relates to the William McInnes conversation we had during lockdown, which he enjoyed an awful lot. Said that it gives him another excuse to listen back to that excellent episode. Thanks for the kind words there, George. But, Jeff, this sent us slightly batty. We have been um, going back through... Uh, the William McInnes conversation and trying to work out what it might be. I mean, initially I thought he mentioned Jeff Thompson. Tomo took six for 77 uh, in 13 overs against the West Indies at Bridgetown in 1978. But we thought, eh, that doesn't feel like it's quite significant enough to be the number for George. So we've literally gone through uh, the entire podcast again and worked out that William McInnes talked about an awful lot of cricketers. So things that William talked about at length were the Adelaide test against the West Indies involving Craig McDermott and Alan Border. Talked about Rick McCosker a lot because he dedicates all of his books to Rick McCosker. Other players that were mentioned... Alan Turner, Tony Gregg, Don Bradman, Ian Chappell fiddling with himself, Mark Taylor fiddling with himself, Matt Hayden, Nathan Astle, Damien Martin, Froggy Thompson, Richie Benno, Andy Flintoff, Steve Waugh, Derek Pringle, Ewan Chatfield, John McLean, not the diehard guy, but the Queensland wicketkeeper, Tom Vivers, the cousin of Vic Vivers, Garth McKenzie discussed earlier, Majid Khan, Greg Chappell, Keith Miller, Norman Cowens and at some length in impersonation, Justin Langer. So are any of those 677? Um, let us know, George, because we've had a look and uh, we're not finding anything obvious. Well, yeah, William, of all the names that he cited, I don't think he mentioned Len Hutton, and that's the best I could come up with. Mm. Len Hutton made 677 runs in a series against the Windies in 53-54, but that might be the one cricketer that, that William didn't mention. But, yeah, there's a decent list to choose from. And having gone through a few of them, I can't find any 677. So, George, back over to you. Uh, yeah, look, the only other one is Gordon Greenwich had an innings against Australia where he batted for 677 minutes. Mm. So... But I don't think Gordon Greenwich was mentioned either from memory. Uh, nonetheless, have a look, George. Let us know. Then there was Christopher Byrne with 869. I was looking at an 8 for 69 taken by Hugh Tayfield. Chris said that he wished he knew enough or anything at all about early post-war South African spinners to reference Hugh Tayfield's bowling figures uh, and said that he's not sure that the number that he's remembering is or was a record, but it is one that stayed in his mind. So here is what I found, Adam for 869. Victoria have played 869 Sheffield Shield matches as of now before we get into next week when <laughs> when the Shield season starts. So there's that. If you want something that's a good number but not a record, Jason Arnberger in 99-2000 made 869 runs, which was not the most in the Shield that year. And it was not even the most for Victoria that year because Matty Elliott had a bigger year still. So that's sort of fits the bill as a number that's not a record but is a number. But I'm guessing that Christopher is from England because he said that uh, he complimented us and said that we were good even if or perhaps because we are Australian. So I'm going to guess that means that Christopher's writing from the UK. So maybe that means it's probably not Rod Marsh's tally of first-class wicket-keeping dismissals, which was 869, although a lot of them came in England, so they might stay in the mind of someone in the UK. But it could be Courtney Walsh as an overseas player for Gloucestershire, the forgotten county in the Jeff Lemon Chronicles, took 869 wickets for that particular county as their visiting bowler. So that's my final guess, Christopher Byrne. Courtney Walsh, who took 519 in tests, 869 for Gloucestershire. 
Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Christopher, for getting back in touch with us and pacing that through. I reckon you might be on the money there with Courtney Walsh and Gloucestershire. Back to 298. So last week we had a, a bit of a gallop and then we stopped. We, we threw it back to the crowd. So um, 298 from $2.98, so 2.98 from Richard Clark and David Short. We went via VVS Lakshman, who batted for 298 minutes, Sydney in 1999, a, a watershed moment for him. And Daryl Mitchell, the Worcestershire batsman, who made a first-class 298, which, Jeff, you cited um, having gone through those lists. Now, Richard sent us a tweet in reply saying that we got a lot further than we thought we had via Daryl Mitchell, who was indeed the 298. Great guess, Jeff. Um, but what's the Australian connection? That's the question from Richard. Worcestershire is the key, but the county as a geographical entity rather than the cricket club, if that makes sense. And then the great hypercourse got involved on the replies and linked us to a scorecard. A scorecard, Jeff, that we've looked at many times before. A scorecard that involves one, Reginald, just the tip, Foster. R.E. Foster, who made... 287 at the Sydney Cricket Ground in 1903, which remained the highest score by a visiting player in Australia until Ross Taylor beat it at the Wacker in 2015. It stood for well over a century. So the link, I think, that Hypercost was getting at was that Tip Foster was also a Worcestershire player and so that therefore there was there was a link there. Now, Richard then replied to this thread and didn't sort of confirm or deny that that's what was going on and said only cryptically, it's amazing to think that Daryl Mitchell's score of 298 is the fifth highest first-class score for Worcestershire and that three of the four scores higher than that belong to Graham Hick. Now, we've talked about Graham Hick <laughs> making 405 on the show before, and uh, there are a couple of other triples in there. The other higher Worcestershire score is Glenn Turner's 311, which we talked about at length just a few weeks ago when I think he was brought champagne on reaching his double hundred at the crease by one of the coaching staff. So I was trying to find this connection, and I haven't necessarily connected it in terms of Richard's cue about Worcestershire, the geographical entity, but I was trying to find very tangential links to a really old innings. And in that sense, the Tip Foster 287 absolutely fits the bill. So what could tangentially link that to Daryl Mitchell via Graham Hick? Okay, how about this? In 2012, Graham Hick visited Australia to play in a fundraiser for diabetes research. R.E. Tip Foster died at the age of 36 from diabetes. Mm. <laughs> Graham Hick was born in Zimbabwe, which is where R.E. Foster travelled in 1913 in a final attempt to rescue his health before dying in 1914 of diabetes. Is that tangential enough for you? Look, I don't necessarily think it's right, but I think it's good. It wouldn't surprise me, Jeff. I remember a few weeks ago you said something similar after going on some tangential spree and it ended up being right on the money. So I look forward to hearing back from Richard. There was one other 298 which we didn't pick up along the way and Pat Rogers steered us in this direction. Dependable and loyal correspondent in the DMs to remind us that, of course, Chuck Fleetwood Smith took a 
world record for runs conceded, one for 298. Uh, of course, when Len Hutton broke the world record and made 364 in 1938 at the Oval, when England went on to make seven for 903. When you consider how often I've looked at that scorecard when we were making calling the shots uh, earlier in the year and listening back to that audio, it's of course one of the first test matches covered uh, by radio and television over here. Uh, I'm surprised that didn't come straight to mind, but thank you, Pat, for making sure that we correct the record there as well, that Chuck Fleetwood Smith did indeed take one for 298. And may we wrap up our revisits with a double and and crown that with a nomination. Not a nomination. This is a, a lay-down misere for Seabus Super Performer of the Week. There is no doubt whatsoever that it's going to be Dane Hanstead, who in the DMs on the Patreon page has solved not one of our extant answers, but two of them, two that were driving us around the bend. So first up, H-H-H-H-H, Harry Howard, Harry Hoffney, Hobar Hines Howard, who sent through this pledge of $2.19 and had a clue about this cricketer being an aspiring Mr Universe. We almost got there, and I'm disappointed we didn't see it out, but we were talking about Gulbuddin Naib, who was Afghanistan's captain, very briefly at the World Cup. He wasn't the captain before the World Cup, and he's not the captain after the World Cup, but he was for those nine games. In a match in the World Cup against, was it against England or was it the one against, uh, the one where they were trying to stifle the run chase against India late in the piece? Anyway, there was a, a, there was a key over late in a chase where Gulbuddin Naib picked up two wickets and conceded 19 runs. It might have been the England game where Morgan... Maybe Morgan I think it was. Yeah, it was where it was where Morgan hits one hundred and sixty odd in yeah. you know fifty odd balls, but Gulbuddin has two wickets in yes. and over, albeit conceding nineteen runs. I think you're spot on there. Yes. Yeah, so Dane Hanstead has has picked that up and said the two for nineteen that Gulbuddin Naib took in one over should be enough to get Harry Howard home for two nineteen. The nerd pledge, spot on. It's got to be spot on, Dane Hanstead. And then Dane backs it up by looking at Jack Schmidt's one dollar sixty four, which was about. An innings of 164 that was overshadowed by a slightly bigger innings on the same day. We were looking at players on the same team who'd both made high scores, but Dane was was not blinded by that sort of short-sightedness and rightly pointed us to the 438 versus 434 game, the one-day international between South Africa and Australia, in which Ricky Ponting made 164, which was overshadowed by Herschel Gibbs making 175. It's got to be it. Dominant leg side play is what Jack Schmidt said. Dane Hanstead is all over it and is the Seabus super performer of story time. You better believe it. I love the idea that Dane has heard these numbers and thought, I'm going to step up to the plate and step up. He has some. The, the Mr. Universe last week when you were going through uh, with uh, Chris Tremlett and who else did you have in there? Mackay And I thought Gulba Dean Nye, but I'm so glad that we come back full circle to uh, where story time, not the origins of story time necessarily, but certainly uh, when, the, when the podcast went daily for the first time uh, and Gulba Dean was a major part of our conversations there and uh, to finally solve once and for all the Jack Smith uh, 164, which was a, you know, I, I reckon this might have been up three or four times now. It's a it's a satisfying way to finish story time. Dane Hanstead, just a cold, calculating, nerd-pledged detective. 
Now, as we do at the end of Nerd Pledge each week, or the end of story time, I should say, each week, we have some space for some correspondence and for some uh, other bits and pieces. One of those came in via Twitter, courtesy of Mark Henderson, one of our patrons. We've been following his daughter Anna's progress throughout lockdown and throughout the belated English season. She's a right-arm leg spinner, nine years of age, and bowls beautifully. And he reported to us yesterday that she has made the Surrey under-10 squad for next year, which is great news. So well done, Anna. I know she listens to the podcast with her dad each week. Uh, she was on television during the summer with uh, Shane Warne reviewing her leg breaks. So there was a segment where junior players could send in videos of themselves and they'd be reviewed by the Sky commentary team. And, and Warney had nice things to say about Anna and now she's made that representative team. And onwards and upwards, I look forward to when she plays for England in about seven years' time and we, you can say you heard it first on The Final Word. Yes, Anna. Get in, get them, toss it up, give them a rip, spin them away, and sometimes spin them back. They'll never know what's hit them. And Jeff, to put a full stop on our chat today before we move to our interview with Jared Waitley from 2018, we've received a number of lovely patron messages and uh, emails about Dean Jones over the last fortnight. We read one out last week, and I thought it would be nice to do the same again today, a message in from Jack Fain. Jack says, thanks for the podcast remembering Dean Jones. I was too young to remember Dino playing for Australia, but I was the proud owner of the VHS tape, Dino, the hits and the misses that I got for my eighth or ninth birthday. <laughs> in the spirit of sharing in times of grief, I thought I would briefly share some memories. Shortly after learning to walk, I was gifted a rounders bat by my older brother. He had sanded it down and painted on the iconic Grey Nichols logo on the face, including the words Diner Drive and two red lines on the back being the twin scoops. Our home videos show me as a toddler swinging the miniature Diner Drive around, and as my brother calls out certain players' names, I launch into their signature shot. Steve War is followed by a cut shot, Dean Jones followed by a charge and a smash over the top. A few years later, I woke up late one Saturday night to my brother crashing around in his room. <laughs> Dino is down at the circuit. <laughs> the circuit being the nightclub around the corner on St George's Road. My brother was turning his room upside down to find every bit of Dino memorabilia he owned. <laughs> he said he'd be there for a while. Dad, lend me 20 bucks. I'm going to buy him a beer. <laughs> And he dashed out of the door with Dad's 20 bucks, two Dino books, three Dino wheat picks cards, and a poster of Dino in one-day colours with a zinked-up bottom lip. <laughs> he jumped on his bike, balancing his belongings under his arm, and headed to the circuit. From then on, my brother batted every week with a signed Dino card in his pocket. He swore that whenever Dino scored runs, he would too. <laughs> What a brilliant message that is. That Thank is you gold. so much, Jack. So thoughtful, lovely story there, which I think is quite relatable, really lovely too. Uh, the idea that uh, there was that connection between brothers, which was uh, enhanced via Dean Jones, who, of course, was put to rest formally uh, this week in Melbourne, that final lap around the MCG. If you haven't seen it yet, it's quite the tearjerker uh, being taken around the MCG to the music of Elton John, who he was obviously so close to. On that note, Jeff, I think that's all for story time today. Thanks for sticking with us for some tales from the history of our great game. If you want to be involved with what we're doing on The Final Word and through story time, it's easy patreon.com forward slash the final word that links in the show notes it's been so fantastic through the last six months the number of people who've got on board and 
really just how much people are enjoying this show, Jeff. We, we get so many messages through the week and they almost all revolve around story time, which is a, a, a nice thing. We didn't expect to be doing two episodes a week. We didn't expect to be doing an episode about the history of the game uh, in 2020, but, but here we are and we're having a great time. Well, if you'd offered it to me, if you'd said we can do a show where you will get to talk about Clary Grimmett for 16 to 17 minutes a week and <laughs> it, it's not only permitted but it's encouraged... I would have been wrapped. So here we are, and uh, thanks to everyone for getting us here. Okay, Jeff. after a quick break, we'll be back with Jared Whateley, our interview with him in Port Elizabeth in March 2018. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we spoke to Lloyd Scott, who was about to go and try to climb three mountains while wearing an incredibly heavy deep-sea diving suit of the old-fashioned kind, doing ideas of this lunacy is for a fundraiser as you might expect for the lord's taverners who we've been doing some work with as well they're trying to raise funds to help particularly kids living with disability and living with isolation and loneliness and lloyd's doing this particular dangerous and strange job that he's doing to try to raise money for them and uh, he's he's battled up and down two of them three mountains so far and made it but it's been pretty hairy going yeah it has the the, the social media clips that lord's tabs are putting up he, he reached scaffold pike the summit of that uh, yesterday they're thoroughly inspirational that the i mean you get a sense of how hard it is. Each we, we, we didn't. I don't think we quite appreciated when um, we heard about the mission ahead of time and talked to Lloyd about it. Going up in a deep sea diving suit means that every step he has to put the sticks in front of him, very slowly making it uh, one at a time. Of course, but it's not a case of just having a suit on and walking up. It's far more complicated than that, and it's very heavy, very dangerous, very hard work. And he's doing a, an incredible job at the moment, raising money, as you say, for the Lord's Taverners and, and the vital work that they do. For young people in the community, I mean, Lloyd's been doing this for 30 years. He's a truly great human being. And the fact that he's been taking on this massive task as his final formal fundraising project and, and doing that with the Lord's Taverners speaks volumes about the, uh, the work they've been doing in the community now for 70 years. The main point of this, of course, is to get people's attention onto the campaign so that they can help raise those funds if you want to be involved with that. It's at lordstaverners.org. And by the time you're listening to this show, so Sunday morning UK time, that's when Lloyd will be attempting his third ascent up Snowdonia. So uh, we'll finish up with a little clip from what Lloyd's been doing on Scarfell Pike, the second of his two peaks. I really couldn't do without everyone that was here. And um, we can see you at the top or back down at the bottom. Let's go. It's the first day of going up the scaffold flight. Um, we've been going about half an hour, 55 minutes. You can see, just see the people in the background. It looks a long way. The legs are actually pretty smashed. Um, it took two days to get up and down their nerves. Uh, and it will probably take me about two weeks to recover from. Um, I've had a day. made some good progress early on and then there was a real kind of sting in the towel it got a bit nasty it got a bit um, spiteful um, quite steep climbs it was pretty slippery underfoot my legs are starting to cramp up as well so it's um
I've had a few air strokes with the um, with the sticks. Or oh, put it there, and you put your weight on it. It's not there, and someone's had to um, catch me or um, drag me back. So there's been a few um, there's been a few scary moments. But obviously, if you're doing it for a fantastic cause. I'm certainly not going to let the kids down. We'll give it everything, and, and we will get to the top. with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Our feature interviews so far on the show have been with elite cricketers Jason Gillespie, Vic Marks and David Warner. This time we're engaging a man who's made an art form of telling the stories of sport and holding decision makers to account. He started his career in the early 90s the old school way in the newspaper business at the Herald Sun. This included roles as the newspaper's film critic and music section editor. At the same time, he earned a reputation for interviewing and profiling the big names in sport, which has been a theme ever since. TV called Soon Enough, a feature on the nightly news in the middle of winter at cold football training sessions. He was famously evicted live on air from the new Docklands Football Stadium concourse by an overzealous security card in the year 2000. When the Olympics came to Australia, he was in the middle of breaking open a big drugs scandal. In 2001, he was back to the general news beat at Channel 7 where a Quill Award followed for outstanding reporting. But soon enough, he was back to sport full-time and he's never left. From the early 2000s, he became a fixture on ABC Radio's coverage of football, horse racing and tennis, graduating to the position of lead sport broadcaster in 2004. When the Offsiders television show began in 2005, he was a regular panellist and eventually took over as the show's host. From 2010, his AFL 360 show began on Foxtel, where it's become a nightly staple of the football season. He literally wrote the book on Australia's most famous mare, Black Caviar, The Horse of a Lifetime, and his call of her win at Royal Ascot became the soundtrack of an unforgettable moment, just as it was when Kyle Chalmers won Olympic gold in the 100 metres freestyle at Rio in 2016. He's won every award in Australian sports broadcasting, including the AFL's most outstanding media performer in 2015 and 2017. And in cricket, he led the ABC's renewed coverage starting in 2015 where he hosted and commentated for three summers. On New Year's Day this year, he announced he'd move to Melbourne's SEN 1116. He's already been to Minnesota to become the first Australian to call the Super Bowl, then came here to South Africa to call the first two test matches. Then it's back to Melbourne for a morning show, Waitley, during the football week and football commentary at the weekend. Jeff and I have worked with him in various capacities over the last few years and we're speaking to him today from his hotel in Port Elizabeth. Of course, it's none other than Jared Waitley. G'day, Jared. Adam, Jeff, thank you. It's a great honour to be part of it. It was a long intro, but I thought it was worth it to give the full picture to those who listen, not just Australia and in Melbourne, but abroad as to where you've been and, and where you're going. It, it's been quite the journey by any measure. Makes me sound quite busy, doesn't it? Gosh, there are <laughs> so many moments which are really vivid. I've been incredibly lucky uh, when you recount a few as Olympic Games and Royal Ascot with Black Caviar and... Um, and cricket and footy and Melbourne Cups and that sort of thing. It is When I was growing up, my, my nine-year-old self would hardly be able to believe that this is what we have been allowed to do because it's 
all I ever wanted. Is I'd be like a whole lot of kids in Australia. Footy, cricket and racing were my heritage. Dad taught me everything that I know about sport. I can recall him saying to me one day, we were sitting at the MCG, he said, imagine if they paid you to be here and I can track my passion to that moment. And those are words which shaped my journey. There's an intensity to the way you go about it, you know, racing back and forth across the world, around the country. Are there times where you struggle to keep hold of that gratitude or is that always there? No, there are moments where, like everybody, it wears you down and you sort of feel like uh, it's a grind. But I do have this sort of embrace the grind. The grind is actually what makes it worthwhile. And then you remember that, you're sitting at a Super Bowl, I mean, wow, and then you're doing test cricket in South Africa on my first journey here, and back home, the lifeblood of Melbourne is AFL, so that awaits. So I, I've never taken it for granted, not a single day of it. So yes, where there are moments where you get a bit weary and think, oh, gee, this is how we're going to go with today, um, I could have a real job. Yeah. So no, I consider myself extremely fortunate, and I hope I always hold that because it is the dream job and if you confuse your passion and your work I can't think of a better way to live. You spoke persuasively about this with the mission statement the state of a nation you gave when you first moved to SCN and hosted your first show Waitley the morning show on the on the network. Uh, what we're going to try and do Jared is unpick that a little bit yeah. and drill down into each individual section and see whether we can really bring to life your, your career in sports broadcasting. Yeah so my idea was just to lay out to people who aren't necessarily familiar with me is who I am. So my idea is this is going to be an exchange of passions. So it was a cards on the table moment. This is how I see sport and how I've engaged with it and what's brought me here and sort of what lights the way. What we'll try and do is I'll read a section or Jeff will read a section. <laughs> we'll ask you a couple of questions and we'll move to the next one. Let's go from the top. It was once said that jazz was the language of New Orleans and so sport is the language of Melbourne. From its boardrooms to its classrooms and its work sites, from the tuck shop to the cafe and the pub, we claim to be the sporting capital of the world and that's not some vacuous boast but a standard of living. Why does it work for us like that in Melbourne and not elsewhere? Why is it so pronounced in our city? I think it's because of the spread of what we have and how we are born into it. We are born into an idea that sport is fundamental to our character and it is our claim that you can enter any conversation at any level in Melbourne life for all of those destinations if you've got some connection with sport. So it is what binds us. It was the concept around AFL 360 was to get two people who were the polar opposite in life and see if every night they could stage a conversation about footy. And the answer is unequivocally yes. And that's true of everybody watching as well. So I think it's our, it is our birthright and then we are incredibly lucky. And this is why I'll never let Melbourne in my mind be reduced to a footy town. It is one of the great footy towns of the world. It might be the greatest footy town in the world because it, it has 10 teams of a national competition, but it also has Grand Slam tennis. So we've had Roger Federer. We've seen the very best of Roger Federer in our own backyard. It's got the Grand Prix, which is, that's the one that is a little bit abrasive as to whether you're with it or against it. It's probably the one that, that sets apart a little bit on that front. It has the Melbourne Cup, which is one of the great races of the world which, and has become an ambition from, from all continents to come and be a part of it. So if you if you just shut yourself off for, for seven months or even 12 months of the year for footy, there's so much that you're missing out on. And I do think that the spread is even greater than 
in my experience, the other great sporting city of the world is New York. But there's so much else going on in New York that it tends to... The sport is a part of it, but it's not the governing part of it. Whereas I think in Melbourne, we're, we're governed by our sport. Is it about physical characteristics as well? Because one of the key things about Melbourne is space, where by footprint it's one of the biggest cities in the world and by population it's nowhere near that. There's space for racetracks, there's space for running up and down the Yarra, there's space for football grounds and cricket. You can have ovals rather than little square soccer grounds crammed into the corners as you do in places in England. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And so from its earliest moments, sport was treasured and we are extremely lucky to have that precinct. So you walk to the mouth of Swan Street and depending on the season... You can hear the the felt on the strings and that's when your soles of your shoes are melting into the pavement. It's so hot in the Australian Open tennis is there. Is you can hear the, the crack of leather on willow over at the MCG or the roar of a crowd from, from an AFL match. And, you know, if you're really lucky, you can wander down and see Collingwood train down on the right. And you might get a, an international soccer team that's passing through as well. So to have that precinct within walking distance of the city, I'm sure that that's a fundamental part of it but it is the great tell i reckon i I think in rome when you when you walk around the corner and bang there's the Colosseum, and you understand instantly what that was in the old world of rome i think when you walk around the corner and see the mcg on brunton avenue in exactly the same way you go i get this this is the actual heart of melbourne yeah the physical location of it being Right within the fabric of that city rather than a lot of, say, the cricket grounds we've been to where you're travelling far outside some of the cities in India or Sri Lanka or even South Africa. Yeah, even Sydney. Like, so, you know, it, it's so far out in Sydney that it's, it's a voyage to go and be a part of it. In Melbourne, and it was deliberately conceived this way, you know, the MCG was to be there right next to the city. And they, the engagement from there has always been thus. And I think, you know, that plays out every Friday night of the AFL season is just the swell of people comes from town or from Richmond Station to go and be a part of what's taking place. Your line was, in Melbourne, we're intrinsically sports fans, but we're not sports fans to the exclusion of all else. Here, sport is so often the way into a deeper conversation. In terms of going across to SEN, which was perceived as a pretty narrow-focused sports station, that seemed like you were really putting down a flag to say, we're going to broaden the focus and bring in other parts of the cultural life of this country. Was that really important for you to lay that marker from the beginning? Yes, and it's what um, it's what the new management wants. That instead of just talking to a narrow group of hardcore footy fans is we want to talk to that group but we want to talk to everybody who's a sports fan in Melbourne so when when we hit Melbourne Cup week when we hit grand final week when we hit the two weeks of the Australian Open everybody is engaged with it it's not for just the hardcore group who who speak the language of sport almost to the exclusion of all else is the beauty of it is is that every school kid every parent every volunteer, every professional, and this is why it's true from, you know, so from the pub to the boardroom to the tuck shop, we're all engaged in sport. But these moments that come along as this is going to be an election year in Victoria, sport has a role in that, but also it's compulsory to vote. Mm. So every sports fan is going to have to vote. I can't see why you would cut that part of the conversation out. We will never speak about anything that is not anchored in sport. Uh, that That's not the way that I view it. And then there are, regrettably, there are days in our town and we are getting too familiar with them when sport just has to be put aside, days of tragedy and days of trauma. 
And you can't just continue on with the sporting conversation and pretend that the real world's not unfolding because we're all caught up in that. So there has to be the capacity, I think, to to have those um, mature and provocative conversations and to go, yes, we will get back to the sport, but just for this moment in time, it can't be the focus of our attention. That, that sort of broad intellectual interest inquiry that you bring to the job, like film and other areas which have the narrative pulsing through them is what makes them great. Yet we have this sort of false dichotomy about sport being allegedly anti-intellectual and being anti-sport is indeed intellectual, yet every university professor in Melbourne has a football team. Yeah, and sport's not the escape from life. Quite often sport is the reflection of life and we can clearly learn a lot from sport, but not if you shut real life out and the real lessons of it. So, and I think that we do follow sport in that way. I think we are eternally searching for meaning in sport. It is tremendously reassuring when you come across the person within sport who has achieved and they understand what they have done. They understand what it means to them. They understand what it means to their game more broadly and they're able to articulate and engage in that. And that's what that's what I'm in it for. And it's only one way. Is the other bit with the station is you, you would not want every show to be the same. Every show should have its individual character and its individual conversation. So across the spread of a day, you you get all the threads of the way sport lives in Melbourne. So... Uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a place for this, especially 9 till 12, and you think about the space that that's been with John Fain and Neil Mitchell in Melbourne. I think there's a space for that with a sporting bent. And so that's what I would like to... That My ambition is to create that show and make it worthy of not only people listening, but worthy of the engagement of everybody who has a stake in sport in Melbourne. To reflect back on your words, the ambition is to create a program true to Melbourne's devotion to sport and its place in our day-to-day lives, to stage conversations worthy of the key influences at the heart of our game, the players, coaches and administrators, to convene a daily discussion and debate that drives the sporting narrative and inspires you to be part of it. Key influences, you've always found a way of being able to tap into uh, these powerful ecosystems and holding people to account. Is that where you see your, your most important role there to make sure that you can have the conversation with the person that matters and ask the hardest question? Yes, and that's the, you know, as Lee Sales does that every night, is the capacity to get the person at the centre of the news cycle to come on. So there are all the conversations that go on around it and we all talk to each other about it. But the only way to drive to the heart of it is to get the person on. Sport is not great on this front. Is You are much more likely to get the Prime Minister on than you are to get the right footy coach at the right time, which has been a... I think that's been something that's been allowed to drift and you would like to correct. It is If I was one of these people, on the day where I'm the centre of the news, I would want to do the right interview. You want to face the right questions. You want the chance to put your side. You want your ideas and beliefs challenged and then you come to the end of that and see how you fared and I often think when you watch those interviews on 7.30 and you think well that person didn't fare particularly well is but that's the idea you front up again next time and you have your ideas challenged Uh, and I think there's there's because of the importance that sport holds in in Melbourne and in Australia I, I think that's right there to be done is on the day where Australia's cricket team culture is at the heat of the question. If I'm at home, I think the chief executive should be on that day in the right forum, being asked the right questions and being able to put forward what they believe and what they will do. So, And that's the idea, is to create that environment where they actually want 
to participate. And whether we do or we don't is that will ultimately be be judged on whether we're successful in doing that. You said that you'd observe and revel in the seasons of our eclectic sporting city and perhaps something that dulls the reflex negative response that has crept into our sporting consciousness and reminds us of its capacity to delight and bind. What do you mean by that negativity? And, and is, yep. it, is it about a polarised world? Is it reflecting broader political trends? Or, or yes. what else do you yep. say there? So I think the flinch reaction is now a negative reaction and that's not just sport. And I think you could you could look at American politics and and develop a thesis on that front. But sport centrally should give us joy. So sometimes in the past, I've listened to talkback and thought, all of these people are so miserable about sport. How have we allowed ourselves to get there? Are we getting any joy from it? Are we just venting here or is this how we're living our sporting experience? So I think certainly in, in my professional life, I have seen this happen and exactly where the tipping point is, losing became more important than winning. So the reflex is to go, they lost mm. instead of they won. Now, there's there's clearly both sides to that coin. But if you're always looking for why did they lose, and you go, well, sometimes the other team just beat them and somebody must lose. So I think, regrettably, we've allowed ourselves to be walked down that path where we instantly obsess on the negative instead of missing the joyful moment of achievement and so i i think um i i really hold a, a an active perspective on that don't look to the negative first let's just see what happened here and then judge whether the game was won or whether it was lost and editorially angle that way but instead of just the flinch to the negative um i want to see if we can guide back to let's revel in it first and then obsess over it second. I was thinking about that line when I was reading it last night. Do you think this has got dramatically worse in the last 10 years or so? Is it a little bit like uh, art imitating life? You mentioned US politics, but Australian politics, and in turn, sport has followed suit, or do you think it was always that way and it's just got maybe 10% worse? No, I think it's got dramatically worse. And I can say that through my experience as a fan, and then I've watched it. I'm sure I've watched it during my professional career as it's gone further and further down that path. And it will remain down that path. It's not going to suddenly lead a revolution back the other way. But if we can create a space where we revel first and criticise second, and both are perfectly legitimate, it's let's not forget to revel. I'm not saying let's not run the critical analysis, but let's not forget to revel because every day that you go to a sporting event, there is something you know, I sat there and watched A.B. de Villiers live across two days and I haven't seen that firsthand before. And th th so there's always something for us, but if, you, if you're only looking at it in one particular way, I think you're, you're not doing justice to it. And, and right, as I say, right at the nub of it is, it, it just felt to me like too many people were reacting to sport that was making them miserable. That can't be the way we live because there's so much in life in recent years to make us genuinely miserable is surely sport is the, the antidote to part of that. So is it your job to be the conduit for that happiness? I think so, at least to talk about it. And then people either will want to or they won't want to, and you'll be able to judge that by whether people ring in and revel in the events of the weekend. And then we get to, you know, the, the questions for the relevant people at the relevant time. And, you know, sport probably has a role to play in this, is there's been... I think, again, across the course of my professional life, a reticence to talk about achievement. 
individuals just immediately glibly deflect to the team instead of going, no, no, you, can we not talk about your personal achievement without it coming across as something else? Right. We you. understand that and then talk about the team and the team accomplishment is a lot. But in US sport, they are clearly, you know, they're braggarts in a way because they will. They'll talk about what they did and what their role in it. And if right. we're deprived that, and I think as a matter of conditioning, players have been conditioned not to revel in what they did. Uh, and I think that's a terrible pity because if they won't let us in, then how do we get in? It's something that I find a bit deadening where it's, okay, you've kicked eight goals and the response will be, well, I was lucky to get on the end of a few or you just made a brilliant hundred. Oh, well, the other guys hung around with me and yep. it was a team effort. And as you say, there's a reluctance to focus on actual brilliance when it's actually taken place before our eyes and yep. then we're sort of being told, no, that didn't happen. And it is possible to do both. Like I think Especially in Australian sport, there's been a method towards being overcautious. Is don't talk about yourself. Oh, I can't really have that. It is in the moment of achievement. Of course, there is team, and we will talk about team. But there is also the moment where sport is shaped by individual actions. Let's delve into those individual actions and do it in a sensible, measured way, and create an environment where we're not asking you to be a braggart and we won't judge you as such but give us an insight into how did it happen what was it like did it build throughout an innings throughout a day have you had a day like it I think those are all those are all areas that a player should feel comfortable in talking about and yet I think they've been conditioned to avoid I wonder the upsurge of first-person websites designed for athletes to tell their yeah. story in recent times is because they don't necessarily trust us yep. to do it for them as, as narrators, such as Nathan Lyon last year. He took eight for 50 at Bangalore. We called that test match, Jared. And after the play, he, he attributed it to how well his colleagues bowled up the other end. He just took eight for 50 on day yeah. one at Bangalore and set up a, you know, a fantastic test match. I, I do think they don't, maybe don't trust us to do our yeah. jobs for them in a way that's fair and in a way that they can ensure be consistent when they do poorly as well. Yep, and I think we've all played a role in getting there. So the only way out is to play an active role the other way. So that's my view. And then, so it is trying to create a space where, say, Glenn Maxwell, who's agreed uh, just in an editorial arrangement, there's no money involved, just to share his story throughout his cricketing year, be it Shield cricket, be it international cricket, be it the IPL. Just let us tap in every couple of weeks to what is going on. What, what have you done? What are you feeling? What are you working on? What was that night like? Which cities have you been to? Is to create an environment where it's a proper conversation. So it's not judged as a, a 30-second clip here. This is a conversation that was 15 minutes, two weeks ago. It's 15 minutes, so it'll be 15 minutes in two weeks' time. So, And this is why I say it, you can only... Um, change it if you play an active role and so that's the idea the idea is to play an active role in reshaping the conversation and perhaps creating a space where where players are, are more likely to be to be open and and speak honestly and to reflect on what their part in it is to the fun stuff jared your, <laughs> your words i'm a child of alan border gary ablett senior and la law i'm inclined to think the peak of civilization was either wrestlemania 3 or the 1989 grand final i'm certainly not going to argue with you on the second <laughs> part there these are the fun bits so okay i want to know where you were sitting at the 1989 grand final or alternatively 89 92 94 95 those grand finals that geelong lost yep. in succession i want to know what where you were and how you felt those games as yep. a younger man so i was in the left forward pocket in 89 so it's interesting, is your 
my view of the game is different to how it looks on television. Mm. This is one of the beauties of being there. So it was where Ablett came up over the boundary throw and kicked oh, yeah. the goal. Yep. So that that was where I was. Um, it was you knew you'd been at something magnificent, and there was no real sense of disappointment uh, in, in my Geelong heart that day. Is the Blight era was an incredible era of footy where the actions were so much greater than the results in a way. So 89, and it does for everybody, doesn't it? It, it, That lives as the most compelling and brutal and spectacular game, the team of the era against a Malcolm Blight coached Gary Abbott-led team who, you know, put on the most extraordinary show. It was high scoring and a few more minutes and it would have been a different result. And then there was the brutality Mm. to it right from the start to the end. So I don't think you could come up with a contest more packed with those elements and more satisfying than that. So every now and then, whenever it's on and I'll stumble across it, I'll sit there and watch some of it. But it lives just a bit differently in my mind than it looks on the telly. It, it's obviously reflected there, but that's the thing of being there. Are you still a fan watching it? When Schultz kicks that goal with 44 seconds to go, do you think we can get down the other end? <laughs> we can still do it, or, or, or are you watching um, it for impartially nearly yeah. 10 years on? Because <laughs> I don't... This is the weird bit. Is I don't crave winning that game. Right. Mm. And that's, you know, the, the history of it, it just lives. So I don't seek to change it, um, I don't crave it panning out any differently. Uh, and that's that's not true of grand finals that followed, but right. there is something pure and magnificent about 89. Is 92 was disappointing because Geelong sort of looked the winners in the first half, but ultimately weren't good enough. Is the, the thing in the four years that they made it, they weren't the best team in any of those years, and they got beaten by the best team in each of those years. There are a couple of years where they didn't make it, where they were the best team, and those those great a little bit. They botched 91, and then 97 was botched on their behalf. But the best time I've ever had following footy was the final series of 94, and that's... You know, they were beautiful. I was in the southern stand, lower deck of the southern stand, with my father, future father-in-law. Claire and I weren't married at that stage. Um, when Gary Ablett kicked the goal after the siren to beat North Melbourne, and we hugged. And we didn't hug on on our wedding day, but we <laughs> hugged in that moment. Uh, so there was the... And we went, as, we went as a group to it. So I went with Claire's brothers and her dad to each of those uh, three finals in the lead-up. So... You know, Billy Brownless, the King of Geelong, after the siren against the Bulldogs, a game that they looked like they'd lost Mm. and they won in 10 seconds. Out to Waverley, where half the team were late with draws, Mm. they played Carlton, and you thought, oh, this can't happen, and they walloped Carlton that day. And then, yeah, the 94 preliminary final is as a singularity my favourite game, where they beat North Melbourne after the siren with the hand of God. Uh, So 94 is is a perfectly positive experience. They got walloped in the grand final, and it didn't matter a jot. They they were terrible in 95, and that was a disappointment. Carlton was the best team, but they gave up really early. So, yeah, that one burnt for a while. But the Colbert mark of 97, I think they probably would have won the flag that year. Yeah, so, you know, I'm the same as every footy fan. There are, there are the days that haunt you, and then there are days that give you just great pleasure and not always in victory. 
there was that feeling of surfing a wave through that 94 bit. I was at all those games as a kid, though, with my dad, and, and I think he felt this great sense of responsibility that he kept taking me to losing grand finals. And, <laughs> and the, the last in the sequence after, you know, the fourth, the, the one in 95, fell on my birthday. It happened that year because they'd pushed it back out. Yep. And, you know, and I was sitting there in my Gary Ablett jumper and he got one kick, was it, for the game? And mm. Stephen Silvani completely... No, blanket, yeah. Yeah, right, and then you go, you go as a Geelong fan in that era and we'd had such great times but we hadn't won it and you sort of started to think, I might never see them win one. <laughs> yeah. And it, I'd always said to um, my Bulldogs friends or my Richmond friends, and I say it to your Melbourne friends, is when it happens, it is so great. And it is so great when it happens. And 2007, yeah, yeah. you're calling the grand final yep. for the ABC. I can't fathom calling a grand final with Hawthorne playing. It would be far too much for me. But you've done it quite a few times with Geelong. But 07, you didn't make it through the game. No, no. So I was sick. We were all sick. John Fain had brought a disease back from somewhere and infected the whole office. <laughs> and I remember calling the opening siren of the 07 grand final and my voice crackled and I thought, oh, I'm in strife here. And I made it through the first half with a deteriorating voice but just had nothing at half time. So I tagged out and uh, Rob Waters came in to call the second. We had to find someone to call it. And then Drew Morfitt was sick as well and by the presentation, he had no voice left. So Peter Donegan came in to call it. He'd done the grand final sprint on telly so he came in to do the presentations for us as we were just crook. It did mean that I was able to go down into the rooms after they'd won it because I was useless to anyone else and just soak it all in and... I do feel extremely privileged to have had those moments to to understand what it meant to people and and to be able to have some share in that. In the back half of that year when the lid became, keep the lid on, keep the lid on, as my, and we take talkback calls on this every Monday morning, you go, I can't, I can't be that person. If all the payoff to a year, to a lifetime following football is fear that it might not happen and like I want to live the whole experience as I believe Geelong would win the flag from about the midway point of that year and the more they won the more certain I was that they were going to win and I did get the full payoff like the, I, they were home at the six minute mark of the second quarter mm. so I've got cautious friends who wouldn't believe in it until halfway through the last quarter when three quarter time yeah yeah <laughs> sorry the goal, for, for us it was the goal just after three quarter time when the lead went to 100 points right, so I right. looked at my dad and said I think we're all right <laughs> so the, Nathan Ablett early in the mm. second quarter and I knew they would win but yeah. so I, I'm I'm a different I'm a different breed of supporter on that front and, and I truly think that you have to sort of I think if you hand yourself totally over to it, the payoff has to be more than, oh, what a relief that we finally won it. It has to be that I waited my whole life for this. And so, you know, I go into every... I don't care whether people judge me. I go into every season thinking that they can win it and follow the journey until they don't. (laughs) But having seen them win three uh, as I'm not a supporter that gets narky. And I actually get narky with supporters who do get narky. You go, how much more do you want how much yeah. more do you want to live through and i think that and this is where a team that goes from i don't know whether we were with a downtrodden because we weren't because there was so much good stuff to watch we got to watch gary ablett every week senior and then junior if all you can see is winning then i think you've lost 
sight of what our journey was as a supporter group. Putting the other side of the equation for a grand final day, you've had to be the narrator, or you've had the privilege of being the narrator for, for many people's special moment. For me, 2008, we spoke about this before, I won't forget your call of the 2008 grand final, especially the closing moments. You talk about 89, Dennis Cometti, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you've witnessed a classic. Like These last moments of grand finals yeah. are so important. How much work do you put into those to make sure that you have the right words to capture the emotion of people who are experiencing something they will never forget? Yeah, so this is... There's no right or wrong to this. It's just how I approach it. You have to have the words to match the feet. And then there's that awkward ground in the middle is you don't want to script things because sport isn't that. It's spontaneous. But you do want to have an immediate understanding of this is what happens, this is what it means, this is where it fits. So you want to have thought through the possibilities, in my opinion. No, no, not you. I. I want to have thought through the possibilities contained within this contest and if this happens or this happens or this happens. And I tend to wander early in last quarters and start to think about, right, so where are we? What are we leading to? And what does that look like? And sometimes you feel like you get it and sometimes you don't. And Bruce McAvan is really good on this. as He says, you know, there are Friday nights, he goes home and he's lying awake in the hotel and he goes, oh, that's what I should have said. (laughs) And it's three hours too late. (laughs) But then there are the days where you go, where you just say it and you think, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what this is. So my motivators are you want to do justice to what's in front of you and then you want to be able to convey it to people who aren't there. So those are the two responsibilities. It's not an indulgence. So calling Hawthorne beating Geelong is... I I don't find that difficult. Yes, I have a set of disappointments in my heart, but they're not entitled to be aired because it's not a personal indulgence to be there. It's the responsibility to be there and make sure that Hawthorne's moment lives. Mm. So when people ask, do you find it difficult to, to call John? I don't. And I think... There is a bias in the ear of some listeners who will sort of never get past the fact that they know a caller belongs to something or another, but you're not there for that. You're there to try to do justice to the feats of the day. I think that ties back into what you were talking about before about exhaustion and weariness and so on. I sometimes think when calling a particularly slow, dull session of a test match... I can't afford to believe that this is boring because I've got people listening who need to be entertained and they need to they need me to find something in the contest they need me to find some energy to help them enjoy it otherwise if my boredom is infecting everybody else who's listening in then I'm doing a disservice yeah. to those people. Yeah. So I think that that's right. It, it's not you have no right to be bored. If the contest is legitimately boring, then you do have a responsibility to convey the way that these men are playing, the way these women are playing is is terrible. Mm. So there was a game, I gave up on a game a lot of years ago at Docklands between Melbourne and the Giants when Kevin Sheedy gave up on the game. And so it was the early days of the Giants and he put everybody back. And it, it was it was ridiculous. But that was it wasn't the personal indulgence of going, well, I'm bored, this is wasting my time. It's going, they've actually given up on this game and therefore it was boring. So the delineations are in there. It's your job to search for what's going on. So the the middle session of day two, none for 43. That wasn't boring. No. That was in its own peculiar way. It was entirely compelling. There were no runs being scored. The bowling was trying everything. South Africa were playing to a grander purpose. And then 
if you interpret that right, you get to work with that on the morning of day three. You go, ah, this is what it was. It was rope-a-dope here, and this is the payoff now. So, yeah, I think that point is exactly right. But where the game actually of itself becomes boring, you are not only entitled to, you're obliged to convey that as well. I want to pluck out one more thing from that previous statement about WrestleMania 3. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's clearly something you have in common with your new chief executive, Craig Hutchison. <laughs> Hutchie tells a wonderful story on his, his podcast, The Sounding Board, about how you two fell out over Lee Colbert's departure uh, from Geelong and an airport uh, ruse of sorts, how you got misdirected. Uh, I want to hear your side of that story. He tells it very amusingly, but how do you, how do you recall that episode at the time? Uh, I don't sort of have any great desire to revisit that. Is the, the way Craig articulated that, that's my recollection of it. Okay. I know that's the reference point, so I'd probably just like to spin back a fraction earlier than that, is we... So he started at the Herald Sun a year after I did. Mm-hmm. I was his mentor in the cadetship program, and after two weeks... Uh, He was teaching me stuff that I'd never realised was going on in my (laughs) 12 months and two weeks there. Uh, And we, um, so I was, uh, he was at my wedding. We spent a lot of, Claire, um, me and Craig spent a lot of time together in those formative years. Um, We learnt to call footy together in in a shonky studio in St Kilda Road where he was about to get his opportunity with Channel 7. And I'm sure Claire came in and panelled for us while we were learning to do it. And so we had a lot of shared heritage. When the possibility came for me to go to Channel 10, he took me into the Channel 7 studios the night before my screen test to teach me about voice projection and how to speak on television. So we had a lot of history. I think if I'm really... um, If I reflect honestly, I carried that too deeply for too long and it's been really nice to reconnect in uh, in the last couple of months and yes, we, you know, the wrestling side of things is a funny thing. I think I think we both harbour an ambition to go to a WrestleMania and maybe take SEN there. I hope I'm not giving away secrets, but one day. From Jared's quote, a lump rises in my throat when the Jamaicans carry the bobsled over the finish line at the end of Cool Runnings, no matter how many times I've seen it. Oh, I mean, come on, if you don't cry at that point, you're not human. <laughs> it was noticeable working with you on ABC that often at the end of a day of test cricket, you'd immediately head off to the movies and you know go and watch whatever the latest release was. You've got an obsession with narrative and that's a huge part of sport, you know, as well as the physical achievements of athletes. There's the story. It's all about the story as pure curiosity, your your other favourite sports films where your Venn diagram crosses over? Yeah, so I love The Natural. is the best there ever was. And I know, you know, these things can become cliche, but the first time you see it, they're not. And the ball into the lights and the shadow. I mean, that's just a spectacular ending to a movie. Uh, cool Runnings is a ripper film and my kids have started to watch it uh, and it, it holds up. And... I know just before the Winter Olympics, Channel 7 put the real clip up and I wish I hadn't watched it because the movie's just, <laughs> you know, they did walk across it. They weren't carrying the bobsled. So you can go a little bit too far. Um, yeah, the, the Natural's the other one I touched to. But uh, like the Rocky films are excellent. They deteriorate as we go, as, as it turns out, Rocky. So Rocky Four is a big part of my childhood. So we're Cold War kids. The trailer was the two gloves, the American glove and the Russian glove coming together and smashing. So you sort of had the, you're months out going, oh, how good is this going to be? As it turns out, it's just a series of video clips and it's one of the worst pieces of propaganda ever committed to film, but that's not how I remember it as a kid. 
So, you know, you can be forgiven for those. Sport is... It offers such great possibilities. It's a pity we don't have a, a crack at it in Australia a little bit more. I love the Bodyline miniseries. Oh, yeah. I studied it for university. Yeah, they let me do yeah. that. They let me write an essay about <laughs> So the, I've the got the DVDs of that, and, and they sit there. Yeah. I mean, Hugo Weaving's superb Brilliant. in that, and Gary Sweet playing Don Bradman, mm. and the way that it ties all that in. So, yeah, as there are such great stories in sport. Farlap's a terrific movie. Sea Biscuits are a great movie. Um, yeah, they're like... I love sports movies. Are you saying that Save Your Legs with Stephen Curry is not a great Australian <laughs> sports film? So, but I don't begrudge anyone that let's have a crack at them because, yes, it's, you know, I know there's this tendency to make really bleak and dark and violent films, but we're a bit more than that. And so, you know, I have this ridiculous idea. I would love to write a screenplay and it wouldn't be about sport, but sport would be in the background because sport's always in the background of everything we do in Australia. It would be there somewhere. Mm. Maybe the Bulldogs 2016 flag, which people that, always say will one day be tennis. Yeah, the no, that, that will be happening in the background of whatever <laughs> I write. <laughs> It'll be a biopic of Bob Murphy. <laughs> okay, I like it when the Marshes play for Australia. Now, I wanted to use this as an entry point to your relationship with cricket. Yep. More broadly, was there a frustration for you when you came to be calling cricket for the ABC and people reflexively said, "But he's the footy racing guy. What's he doing? Yeah, What's yeah. he doing in the summer commentating cricket? He's not. He's not that guy." Yeah, so I'm a sports broadcaster, and I think if you're fair about that and look through my body of work, you know that I'm not one thing nor another. And I really like. I, I've studied what happens in the states, and you look at Al Michaels and the sports that he's done is there is the capacity to move between them and have an expertise that belongs to all of them and you respect the game, you respect the differences in the game. But nor do you have to quarantine one from the other. Like there are, I found when I came to cricket, there were obvious lessons from footy which cricket hadn't learnt and some of it was about high performance and some of it was about selection and every sport is different but there's an arrogance if you think, no, we're completely removed from the rest of the idea of high-performance sport. That's just not true. It's not true from baseball to football to ice hockey to basketball in the States. And it's not true from footy to cricket to racing to rugby league in Australia. So uh, it wasn't a frustration. It was just a, if that's all, if you think I'm the footy guy, then you haven't been paying attention. Mm. And I'll just get to work give me a go and if I'm no good at it then that's fine but yeah as if they'd said to Al Michaels no, no no you can't do this because you do that you go wow what what we would have missed out on in an international broadcasting sense did you go into that with a determination to prove your worth there or were uh, you just about worth. no the, the determination was a collective determination it was to um it was to re-energize and that has been the that had been the task given to me. So it wasn't a personal crusade. It was mm. to re-energise uh, the cricket on the ABC, and and bring it into the modern setup of the way sport was broadcast. That was outlined to me very specifically, and what I did was absolutely in line with what our superiors had asked for. And you grew up with cricket just as you did for Yeah, absolutely. So my three were footy cricket racing growing up. I wasn't a very good cricketer, but I was certainly a better cricketer than I was a footballer, and I was a better cricketer than I was a punter. So <laughs> so the, the sport had always held a place for me, and I understood it, and I studied it, and I'd readied myself for it. Tell us about your background with it, though. Didn't you run off from a cricket game to go and uh, 
get to the races. Yeah, one day that's or... true. So the 1990 Cox Plate. So the first horse I ever loved was Better Loosen Up. And I was playing cricket, not at a very high standard, so I don't want to for a moment pretend that I played at a good standard. But I would play with my mates in suburban cricket and I was a doer opening batsman. I could take the shine off the ball, but I couldn't score. And once I'd done that, my mates were just actively hoping I would get out so we could get on with the business <laughs> of scoring runs. So they were quite happy for me to do my job at the top and then get out. But this one day I was actually making runs. I may never have made more runs than, uh, than I'd made that day, but I had a time I had to hit where Dad was picking me up to take me to Mooney Valley because I wasn't missing Better Loosen Up. Uh, so I did. I jumped down the wicket and hit the spinner straight in the air, got caught at mid-off, walked off, walked past everybody, picked up my gear and got in the car. <laughs> and you can imagine how this looks. Oh, yeah. It looks like a you know, temperamental moment. But I just had to get to the valley, and it was—it's still—it's such a great Cox Plate. You still have a bet on yourself. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> cleaned yeah. up more on the cricket. So I'm absolutely guilty of that. Do you see yourself as a broadcaster now, being that that quintessential footy in the winter, cricket in the summer, and doing that cycle and touring with the cricket as you have in the last couple of years? Is this the the next stage for you as a, a long term project? And and I guess this is the dream at Sen is to Craig Hutchinson's dream is to accumulate rights to live sport to augment the conversation around sport and yeah one of the great attractions in going there is to is to be part of that and to to be at the forefront of that and so you know my my first experiences are super bowl which was just incredible south african test cricket and then back home for afl so i feel like it's delivered against the idea of what it was going to be and i feel especially lucky um to be to have these opportunities and yeah is you know if Winks goes to Royal Ascot I want to be there I want to be everywhere but yeah so but there are certain demands that you have to meet you said you're still holding with black caviar yeah. over Winks uh, do you do you but, enjoy the needle you get from people yeah that? I do I've always enjoyed that is the idea that I loved black caviar which I'm totally guilty of is uh, I've really enjoyed the interaction with people on that front I sort of feel like if you were living in the 30s and it turned out your reputation was you loved Farlap, you'd probably feel like you'd spent your time well. Yeah. But equally, you can't and you can't just jump from one to the next to the next. What would it say about me if I jumped to yeah. Winks from Black Caviar? You'd all sit there and go, hey, where's the loyalty? Swapping so, horses midstream. Yeah, yeah. So I'm happy to stick with what I saw and just admire from afar what Winks is doing. When Tommy Woodcock used to sleep in the stall with yeah. him. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of love for... <laughs> When you went to Royal Ascot in 2012 and put on the top hat and the tails and all the rest and, and called that famous victory, which was won by, I can't remember what the margin was, but, you know. Yeah, it was a short head, I think it was. It short, felt like a nose. A short head or a nose, whatever it was. It was it was a clutch call for you going all the way to yeah. one horse race and the pressure around that day and the preparation required to call a race like that being so far away and other variables as well. And to, to nail it, how satisfying was that? Yeah, it was. It's a really interesting experience. I... <laughs> Because I was writing the book, there was a lot at stake, sort of... I hadn't thought about the call a whole lot, which probably sounds a little bit ridiculous, is it really was about the last chapter of the book. And um, it's one of the rare times I've felt like I've had a stake in what I was calling. Like, it really did matter that she won. The rest of the time is history is history and you're there to document it. So it was a fascinating week. Uh, it was it's one of the great experiences I've had. I had a calling post uh, literally in the rafters of the grandstand. Uh, it didn't have the equipment there that you would 
typically like to have. Um, they were a long, long way away. So I wasn't, I wasn't set up in a broadcast box with my racing binoculars and that sort of thing. So there was a, a bit of a margin for error in it. Uh, I didn't, uh, I'm happy to say, I didn't see Luke Nolan ease up on Black Caviar in that way. It was, and, you know, the call, it, it's there as, as Moonlight Cloud starts to flash at Black Caviar and, and that's what there. And, and on the line, I felt there was definitely a margin and was happy to go with that. But it wasn't until I got downstairs afterwards that you realise the magnitude of what had happened. Mm. He dropped his hands, eased up on her and then just pushed her out to the end, which was... Um, you know, it was incredible to document in the book, but in the moment that it happened, I wasn't in a position to be able to see that. So, you know, I don't think technically it's a um, it's a very good call, even. But it, it, the last twenty five seconds is very true to what unfolded, and I've never been more tempted to hold my breath at the end of that than in anything else that I've done, and that would have been hopeless on radio. But there was that that was that gasping element to it, which lasted for hours afterwards. Like I can vividly recall, it felt like she had lost, which was a, such a pity for Peter Moody and for Luke Nolan and for all the owners. And it wasn't till the party later on that night that they started to decompress and actually enjoy what had happened. They'd gone and they'd won. And for all that went wrong and for all the dramatics and theatrics around it, it it's the crowning moment of her career. And But it lives better in hindsight than it did on the day. How do you forgive yourself when you feel like you've got something wrong? Uh, you, you have to live with what happens. So all you can do is give yourself the best chance and if you fumble it, you fumble it. And, you know, it, you you dwell on them and you, you glum about it. But as long as you gave yourself the best possible chance of getting it, well, you just have to live with the rest of it. There's no point you can't go back and do it again. You can't voice over the top of it. Mm. You know, the final stages of the Melbourne Cup, you just have to get it right. And that's the, you know, that's the pressure and the challenge of the job. Yeah, but you have to get to a point where you go, you've got to be able to live with what happens and what you say. And, you know, it's just, if, if it goes wrong, then it's just mea culpa is, you know, it, it happened. Must say, when you made that comment about Bruce McAvaney earlier about how he goes home at night and, and ponders what he possibly should have said, I, I've had that feeling. I'm sure Jeff has as well. It, it's good to know that Bruce and yourself are both human. Yeah, yeah. Three days after the Richmond Premiership, it finally dawned on me, oh, that's what it was. So, you know, what's there is fine, but you go, ah, oh, and it took three days. And, you know, maybe that was the magnitude <laughs> of it all. You go, oh, I wish that had come to me in the in the three minutes before the final siren. You've also been involved in, in the world game as well, and, and the next line relates to that. I'm yet to hear anyone make the case that Australian football is better off without Ange. My thinking about that line was how hard it must be for you sometimes to divorce yourself professionally from the way in which you develop these quite intimate relationships yep. on the couch on offsiders over many, many years. The Ange story itself, did you find that particularly challenging to report on? I found it distasteful, and this, is, uh, this was a really good reflection, I think, of the way the modern landscape has been allowed to deteriorate. So Ange went from the key for in Ange we trust. Yeah. That's what it was. He took us to a World Cup and got us out credibly in a setup that wasn't very good. 
he won the Asian Cup in thrilling circumstances in a really unifying moment. And then over the course of about six months, it was allowed to be portrayed that he was the chief villain in Australian football and was essentially driven from the job. And it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous while it was unfolding. You know, talk about the national team is not a coach's plaything. And you go, well, the, the coaches in every team in every sport are forever pushing and pulling and experimenting and trying because if they don't get their team better uh, what are you doing in the job Australia had to go the longest way possible to make the World Cup but they made the World Cup and it wasn't depicted as a triumph and this is where I get back to Mm. the idea of entitlement we're not entitled to make a World Cup and I don't think this is a particularly good team I think he got the absolute most out of it and Australia made the World Cup and the toll of it was that he was driven from the job. So we lived through a phase where we went, we must have an international coach and then it was, the international coaches don't give us anything that looks like Australian football. So the commentary was, we must develop an Australian brand of football to have an identity and Ange came in and he did that and he was working on it it was a long term project and it had peaks and troughs and then it was the no you can't be doing this we must go back to an international coach so the setup now is we have we have a, a flying coach to take a team to a world cup and then we have Graham Arnold take the reins after that is and as I say I would like to hear one person credibly make the case that we are better off that Ange is not taking this team to the World Cup. I just don't think it's possible. And the people who really ran that six months worth of vitriol and gathered all of social media to it, I think they should reflect. I think they should ask themselves. And I think they were completely wrong in what was going on and they're completely wrong now and there should be a bit of accountability for that. There are a lot of things I love about Australian sport. The thing I probably love least is that sense of entitlement. It crops up when the test team loses. Uh, There's an expectation that we're supposed to win. We deserve to win uh, and that it's it's unfair. You know, like you say, supposed to make a World Cup when you go back to 2006 and it was such an incredible uh, feeling of relief that Australia had even made a World Cup in the first place. I mean, is that down to privilege? Is that the lucky country being a bit too lucky? What's your take on that? Yeah, I'm... It's probably a little bit of all of that, but it, it's deeply ingrained now in how we follow our sport. But yes, the sense of entitlement, I think, is a terrible pity, and it plays out, I think, very vividly at the Olympics. So I'm a believer, and I run a little bit against the grain here, that how Australia has been performing at recent Olympics, that actually is our level. Mm. It's seven, eight, or nine gold medals. I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's not 15 gold medals. And when we go with the expectation and the prediction of 15 or 16 gold medals, that's just, it's historically inaccurate. There was a short period of time where we were blessed with generational athletes, generational athletes who won the bulk of them themselves. And then there was a home games in there, which always skews everything. I suspect we're back exactly where we have been and where we belong. The idea of punching above our weight. I think we punch very neatly at our weight but what it means is and i can tell you this from the rio experience is it's all shrouded in disappointment it's shrouded in what is not one rather than what is one the punch up between john coates and the sports commission had started it was the saturday morning paper 
And overnight, Chloe Esposito had won the gold medal in the modern pentathlon, which is one of the great upsets of modern times, but the punch-up was already on. So it, it's in you know the gold medal, that, that pinnacle moment of achievement, which is the medal we all hope for, is when it's completely unexpected and then it's done. You know, that's... Oh, we missed it. And it is because we are we're counting the victories and that's that's no way for me that's no way to follow sport it doesn't mean there can't there shouldn't be scrutiny so and this is i think james magnuson made a great point around the difference between summer and winter olympics so magnuson had the most bruising experience Mm. of a modern olympian in london he was the alpha male of the team the whole setup was built around him leading the relay team to gold and winning individual gold. He missed the individual gold by one one-hundredth of a second and he was the pariah of Australian sport. And the whole breakdown in the, in the swimming system was basically nailed to him. His individual performance was a sporting failure. His, he was half a second slower than he was at the trial, so if he swims that time, he wins by a body length, whatever you know, half a second represents. Um... And the flow on from losing gold as opposed to winning silver. Now, he looks at the Winter Olympics and everything that is won is, um, is celebrated because there is a, there, there's a gimmick element to it. As we all tune in and we know nothing about moguls and we know nothing about half-pipe and snowboarding that's there before us so Australians win medals, mm-hmm. is Scotty James gets to the final run in the half-pipe, the gold medal's up for grabs, uh, and he falls. And the celebration is he won the bronze medal. As I think Magnuson looks at that and go, hang on, that was me. I won the silver medal and I got pilloried mm. for it. And there is this. So there's an absolute difference, which is tangible and perfectly understandable in both of those. And I, I understand why Magnuson would feel it. Historically, is that also down to the AIS providing a bit of an anomaly for a couple of Olympics where Australian sport was better funded than other countries? And now, Yeah, so I think Ian Thorpe, Susie O'Neill... Sydney Olympics. Whatever the spread of medals is, yeah. it's concentrated in three games Absolutely. with generational athletes and this, the buffer of the Sydney Games. And I, I just truly think we're back where we have always been and where we properly reside. Especially when you consider how quickly it came after Seoul with three gold medals and, yeah, and so yeah. on. Yeah, and there are a lot of really good jump. decisions made and you have to be vigilant. You can't just... And I'm with John Wiley here. Is you can't just accept that uh, we don't win as many gold medals as we used to. You have to set yourself up to achieve as much as possible. But when you put in a system that mercenarily hunted gold medals and you put a number on that and you don't meet that number, the conditioning is Australia failed. That's no way to live in Olympics. You said, I don't understand reverse sweeping Bitcoin, Donald Trump's tweets, Donald Trump's presidency, renovation game shows and why my daughters can't buy an Elise Perry bat from Rebel. Was there any anxiety about bringing the US political side into it, given that there was always going to be a reactionary core of the audience who might react against that? Uh, was it something you felt you had to say? It's just in the things I don't understand, Is it's just one of the things I don't understand. The people in the Fox footy office will tell you for about 18 months out, I thought it was very legitimate that Trump was going to end up being president and that people were dismissing it in a way that... Uh, because it didn't seem to make sense, it would never happen. And it, it, from a long way out, and I have an interest in these things, it truly looked like it was going to happen, I felt. And that there was a fear involved in all of that as if people don't wake up to what's happening and there's there's so much revisionist history and there's 
did the Democrats completely misread what was going on and Bernie Sanders was their agent for change but they were wedded to this idea that it was Hillary's time and so they completely misread the play for a long lead-up period and then it led to that that horrible day when you know watching I, I was traveling to Sydney that day the last thing that happened was Barry Cassidy's tweet yeah that it was over that he wouldn't win and then by the time I turned the phone back on in Sydney it, it, it had moved in those graphs which showed the way that the counting moved across an hour and a half and so I'm a bit of a believer that all the old analytics in politics are broken but they are still being applied in the same way as if, if people will be told how to vote in the way that they used to and they clearly won't and the more you tell them the more they'll go no we're not doing that we'll do whatever we want to do and the measure the measurements as you take brexit and the complete misread of the the analytics there as to how people were going to vote roll that into america like opinion polls at the moment they just make me laugh because they are trying to measure an old world that has moved rapidly and will never settle again and you'll have a perspective on this adam but yeah so it, it troubles me that i'm i don't i'm like most people it troubles me that donald trump is the notionally the most powerful leader in the free in the free world when i heard that line my radar went off that you're gonna you're gonna cop it for this and you did on twitter and social media that was the one line pulled out of this whole mission statement where people said classic abc yeah yeah <laughs> you know the drill yeah I, I went on reddit last night as i'm prone to do for my sins this is one comment what a dumb nerd lol go pies in response to the yeah, comment. yeah comment yeah did you know that that was going to be something that would lay an early marker for you that you were going to say what you thought on issues that were Broader than how Collingwood going to get. Yeah, this week. yeah. So our Go Pies man, he has to vote in November in the state election. He has to vote in the next federal election. That's our system. It's yep. compulsory voting. So what does he use to go and when he goes to the ballot box? Is it's really important? I think now more than ever, people have to have an understanding of what the world is because if you end up with Donald Trump as president, is was that negligence? Was it apathy what was it um because it's not sense um yeah the bit that i i so the people who have me pinned as abc only sort of have missed a bit i'm i'm tabloid newspaper trained so i was a cadet at the herald sun Mm. i don't have a university degree i was taught to be a journalist at the herald sun i went to channel 10 i work at Fox, which is a news limited owned company and i worked for a long time at the abc but never in isolation so the people who have me pegged as a left-wing abc type are wrong they're just wrong Elise Perry was the second half of that sentence, Jared. You made yeah, yeah. A, a point about women's sport there, which was a, a noti- noticeable one. Uh, where do we miss a trick here? How, um, how did it happen that women's sport got so big in individual sports, Olympic sports, swimming, track yep. and field, the individual sports that we follow, tennis, of course, golf for that matter with Carrie Webb, yet footy and cricket, the lifeblood of Australia, we took 20 more years to catch up and even now we're only in the baby steps. Yeah. So the Olympics are special. Uh, so I don't think, you can roll that in as, you know, Kathy Freeman, Susie O'Neill, Sally Pearson, Anna Mears. For a long period of time, the star of Australia's Olympics have been female. I think you set that to the side. So, so the Matildas played a role. The Matildas won a knockout game at a World Cup and the visibility of it grew. Uh, now, 
I understand people object to, you know, you have a theory, people object to it. The country changed when Michelle Payne won the Melbourne Cup. It changed profoundly. It lifted the horizon on what sports fans were prepared to engage in with women's sport. And I think when the thesis is properly written, that will be the tipping point. And there were all these outstanding Australian sports women who weren't basking in the glow that they should have broadly. Their achievements were there, but they weren't being recognised and elevated in the same way. And out the back of that, there was just this tidal wave. And, you know, you look at it now, Sam Kerr's the best footballer in Australia, male or female, doesn't matter. When she goes out to play, she carries the national interest and she scores. She's phenomenal. Elise Perry, the double century that she made as sort of the rightful moment that she was finally entitled to and she got the AFLW as a social movement rather than a football competition and it will settle into being a football competition over the next five to ten years but it's not going to disappear because the people involved and the women around it will simply not let it regress is we've finally we've finally crossed the threshold and it's a really difficult landscape like with it comes legitimate criticism and scrutiny and analysis and ratings and sponsorships and all of that but these are these are the baby steps but we're past the threshold where it, you know, it was declared that women's sport wouldn't be watched and couldn't be profitable and there weren't careers to be had, is we're there. And it'll take a generation. But we finally got past the threshold. And the last thing to catch up is, and Shannon Gill from Kookaburra told me that there are a couple of women's bats, but when my daughter started to play cricket in year seven and I wanted to go and buy her a bat, is the lag was, is I wanted a Meg Lanning bat or an Elise Perry bat. And I could only get a Dave Warner bat or a Steve Smith bat. And you go, there's there's such a lag here. And I did for one moment contemplate, I wonder if you could get the licensing rights to this and get it on the shelves because I'll be like so many fathers and daughters <laughs> is we're all looking for the same thing and we will all buy it for them. I don't want Beck to have the kaboom. I want her to have the, the Elise Perry bat. Yeah. I grew up with the Allen Border Duncan Fernley five-star special. That's what we've done as kids and... That's what our daughters should be able to have, and I'm sure in a year or two years, but there there is a lag there. Another line from you here. Like a good few of you, I imagine, my dad taught me most of what I know about sports, supplemented by Bruce McAvaney and Les Carlyne. On Bruce, you've been linked for so long to be the successor to Bruce one day, to be the narrator on TV as well as radio and those big football moments. How do you respond to that sort of assumption? It's There's nothing you can do about it. It's not my choice. So I don't think about it, but I do think about Bruce. Like he is one of the world's great broadcasters. And when you hear him do the 100 metre final at the Olympics, you know, go and find me a better call. Of all of the people who are sitting in the stand doing it for their countries, go and find me a better call than what Bruce produces. And I suspect when when his time comes, it will, uh, we've lived through it, but it will suddenly dawn on us going, wow, how blessed we have been that we have had the best sports broadcaster in the world telling us these stories for such a long period of time and whether we took it for granted or sort of people go in and out of um of fad as to you know i i understand there are people who criticize bruce and you go well that's just that's very comforting is you will never please everybody all of the time but we will look back and go 
he always had the the right words and the right tone for the moments that will live and and so that side of it is something to clearly aspire to but also just to appreciate that we had it we've and we've still got it and not to miss it don't miss it this is so good it reminds me of the way that Laurie Oakes was spoken about in my last years yeah yeah it was quite clear Laurie was going to retire at some stage but they hadn't quite worked out who was going to replace him there wasn't like a you're the natural successor to Laurie yeah, Oakes and so. it, you can't succeed him so whoever takes up the reins of Bruce's duties it's not a continuation mm. of Bruce it's not a continuation of Laurie is Laurie's an inspiration uh, for any journalist is don't run with a pack those sorts of things is but you can't be that. So whoever um, moves in after Bruce, you can't be Bruce. You have to be your own person and you have to do it in your own way. And then the body of work that was Bruce's sort of, it, it, it lives because of it. Tim Lane was another hero of yours yeah. and uh, working with him for the first time. How was that? Uh, it was great. Is the, I'm a big believer that in a, in a two-man commentary team, um, in a football game is the chemistry is vital so you learn and you try to live up to uh, and you take threads away from every game and it makes you better every time that you go and yeah as it's a it's a shared experience I reckon it's, it's very hard to do in isolation and the better the people you work with the better you in, will inevitably be Another line from you. My wife is smarter than me, although she reserved her sporting passions for the committee room at Flemington and Crown on the afternoon of the Brownlow. Is she the most understanding person in the world? Yeah, I think Claire is. You're flying around the planet constantly. We're a partnership, Claire and I. So we've been going out since we were 17 and we were married when we were 22. So everything that we've done, we've done together. Family life, travel... And I feel really lucky with that, is that everyone has their own experiences of when they travel and then when they set up. But Claire and I have been through it all together. So we make our decisions together. She's made enormous professional sacrifices to indulge what I've been able to do. We've got three kids who are 13, 10 and 5. And that's clearly the hardest part of the job is is missing moments in their lives and their upbringing and part of the, the footprint at SEN is actually it sounds weird but it's a more family foot friendly footprint than what the ABC was which is a bit harder to sell at home when you've been to Minneapolis and South Africa <laughs> and flying back for two nights in between yeah it? yeah but I'll get I'll have a legitimate day off each week during the footy season which I haven't had since 360 started so I'll be there on you know, hopefully Sundays or Fridays, but maybe a little bit of sport and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, that's a balancing act and you can't do it selfishly. You have to do it together. And we are great partners and I love Claire dearly. And, yeah, the kids sort of get used to what it is, but it's never easy when you go to leave. Is that That's always the hardest part when you go to leave for a couple of weeks. It's never quite the same when you're phoning in from home. Jared, you said, I believe the sporting gods are real, vengeful and perverse. So do I. If you were king, would there be odds on the telly of footy and cricket as we were watching play take place? There wouldn't be the encouragement for gambling. This is, it's a, it's happened so quickly and it's happened so overwhelmingly and we will come to regret it as a society. So when we were growing up, sport was about tipping, but it now feels like too much of sport is about betting and I'm not puritanical about this. I mm. do have a bet on the races. I don't bet on sport, um, but I'll, I have a punt on the races. So I'm not um, I'm not adverse to it. But 
it, it, it was a wave of free money which sport overdosed on heavily without really any thought for what the consequences of that might be. So when I turn on the NFL game on Monday morning and I follow it, but I'm not exactly up to speed with where we all are, I want to know who's the favourite and who's the underdog because it helps my understanding of the game. Are the Broncos expected to win here or if they win, is it an upset? That's the only framing I'll accept around odds. And it's really important. It's important to know who am I expecting to win here so I understand if there's an upset or not. The rest of it is just, it's regrettable. And it's not regrettable that you can bet on sport. It is regrettable how not only normalised but encouraged and for a period of time, and this has been wound back, it felt like to really be involved you had to have a bet. And I think that that was a really terrible overreach. We haven't had a chance to talk about your call of the Super Bowl because your statement predates that. Just give us an insight how you went from not having called NFL football before to giving a, a commentary on it that American websites are judged as the best call of, of the biggest moment of the game. Just give us a quick snapshot of how you managed to pull that off. So I had a month and the first thing I did was started to listen to it on radio. So Westwood One had the, the national calls of the playoff games. So the first step was to how do they do it and it immediately made sense to me and in fact I was of the view that the, it was preferable on radio than how it is on television as having listened to a couple of games and then you start to work through the mechanics okay so how does this set up each play sets up the play action is short and then there's the reflection on what happened and the you know one of the parts is the ball always goes to the quarterback he's got an option left or right or he's got about four options in front of him is he going to pass is he going to throw and then who are those players the rest is fully immersing yourself in the game and telling the story and that's we've discussed that that's what I like to do that if I have a style that's my style I just want to tell you the story so whether you really understand the intricacies of it or not I wanted you to be able to tap into it by the time I got there I was really comfortable and then you can either do it or you can't and you don't know until it starts but what I knew is it would sound great because I'd been listening to it so unless I totally botched it it was going to sound great coming through the radio it was the Super Bowl itself. It was like arriving in an Olympic city, but with only one event. So from the moment you got there, you were totally immersed in it. The game was utterly brilliant with moments, so many moments. Um, and yeah, to be able to tap those. And then it's the thing is, it either comes to you in the moment that it happens or it doesn't. And in a couple of those moments, I just sort of felt like it. I said the right things. And... The, you know, the most gratifying part was the reaction of the audience back home who would either resent the fact that we were calling a major American event, which in truth is the biggest international sporting event of the year, or they would go, yeah, we're totally into this, even though we only vaguely understand it, and it was the latter. And so I found that extremely gratifying that people were able to tap into it. And that's part of the ambition is we want to take the sports-loving public of Melbourne, and because of technology, everyone around Australia, we want to take them to these events. Why wouldn't you want to be there? So instead of that flinch reaction going, don't do that, you shouldn't be doing that, you go, no, 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 come with us. It'll be great. Imagine if one day we could take you to the US Masters. You'd want to be there. I would want to be there. Whether it's me or not, as a listener, you go, yeah, yeah, take me there. So let's drop the, oh, why would you do that? And go, yeah, take us there. It'll be awesome. 
looking at those events around the world, you said, I believe the deeds of an individual, Cathy Freeman in Sydney, Cadell Evans in France, Ashton Agar at Trent Bridge can brighten the mood of the entire country. To look at the relationship between Indigenous Australians and migrant Australians, from my perspective, it hasn't got any better since Cathy Freeman won that gold medal. We seem to have as negative an attitude from non-Indigenous Australians towards Indigenous people as, as ever. Are we less equipped to celebrate a moment like that than we were at the time? Is there a path forward to make that improve? That's a hard question where I don't feel like I have a great level of expertise on the social and cultural side of it. What I do know is that, no, I think the, it was such a transcending moment and Kathy Freeman's pride in being an Indigenous person, uh, I think, touched all of us and it may not have changed things. There is... Sometimes I feel like if we narrowed it down to footy... For a lot of people, their only connection to an Indigenous person might be their player, might be Eddie Betts. Yep. I think Eddie Betts provides a disproportionate amount of joy. I, I think clearly beyond any other player is Lance Franklin is different, Cyril Rioli is different again. There's something about Eddie Betts and it is so profoundly disturbing that the joy that he provides us is then tempered by the racial abuse that he gets from, you say from time to time, from time to time is routinely in my book. Why would, and I think that's grossly unfair and it's a miserable reflection of us as a people, someone who provides all of us with a disproportionate amount of joy then gets exposed to something which profoundly affects the way that he's able to engage with society and with his own sport. I think that's a dismal, dismal moment for us as a society. I don't know the way through it, but when it happens, it is so deeply upsetting. The last line, Jared, of your, your statement. By way of a last first word, as it were, I've seen a few movies recently. I rather like Tom Hanks with Ben Bradley's legendary My God, The Fun, but have settled on Gary Oldman's Churchill. Here's not to buggering it up. Jared, is that the tightrope you need? Is this kind of how you operate? That You need that level of exhilaration you need to know that if it doesn't quite go to plan that it will be a mess do you need that to stay at the peak of your past to keep you finely tuned uh, i like the it's live so if your first hour doesn't go well you've got your second hour to make amends for it and then you've got your third hour to fix it up again so nothing is a little bit like sport it's not lost is I guess you can lose you can lose a game in the first session, can't you? But you can't lose the broadcast in the first session. So there's always the opportunity to improve. So I strive to learn every broadcast, and I try to improve every time I do it. And that's uh, that won't be any different to the way people lead their professional lives in any other sphere. It's just it's in something that we all have an engagement in. So there'll be moments that don't work. Uh, I think the modern phrase is fail fast and move on to the next thing. I'm totally up for that. But if you don't try something, I'm not quite sure why you're doing it. So I'm not a... Let's not swim between the flags. Let's be a bit bolder than that. And my God, the fun is, you know, that first morning when I got told Roger Federer is on the line, he goes, yes, this, how good is this? And this morning back in Melbourne, Tiger Woods was on the line with mm. Gary Lyon and Tim Watson. And he goes, so there's the adrenaline shot if you're the one talking. But then there's this moment, if you're the audience, we're about to hear Tiger Woods. My God, the fun. So, uh, 
you have to be prepared to take chances. You put yourself out there. There's some people who will never go for you, and that's okay. I think there's the capacity to do something that people will really enjoy if they open their hearts and their minds up to it. And something a little bit different is why would we want everything the same all the time? So let's be bold and I'm the only one with anything at stake here. Everyone else just gets to come along and join in the conversation and I hope people do. You know, as I love talking sport beyond all else. As I don't know how long we've been doing this, but I reckon we could do this for the next three hours, <laughs> the three of us. And this is how we all are with sport. So let's do it. Let's go to the great events of the world and let's document them. Let's talk about them. And let's just have, let's remind ourselves how great sport is in all of our lives. What a wonderful sentiment to finish it on. Jared, you've been incredibly generous to talk to us at such great length today. Indeed, you've been incredibly generous to Jeff and I over the last few years. Someone as professional and diligent and passionate as you are. And thanks so much today for joining The Final Word. Absolutely my privilege and all power to the both of you. I'm Daniel Norcross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's the final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And as we like to do at the end of story time, thank you retrospectively, even though it's been two and a half years, thank you to Jared Waitley for your time. It was when we were at, sort of at an interesting stage of the final where we were trying to find our feet and what would come next and whether we would be able to do it as often as we would like. And, and Jared uh, gave us that time uh, and gave us that insight to his brilliant career as a sports broadcaster. And it was a, a most worthwhile conversation. This is what we like doing on the weekends, so thanks for joining us while we did it. Everybody who's listened in and got this far, Storytime happens because of Patreon and all of the people who support us on it. God bless you and the ships you sail in. If you want to join that crew, it's a lot of fun. Patreon.com slash the final word. The show reaches you on the Bad Producer Productions podcast network. You can find them at badproducerproductions.com. And it is edited each and every week and twice a week by David Collins. No relation to Adam Collins. We don't even have family bonds to lean on to make DC work as hard as he does. That shouldn't even be my last name. That doesn't relate to the grandfather I told you earlier who went to prison. Different story no. altogether. Different thing. I different just realised something. Mm. I've, I've, it's taken me all these years. I've never worked <laughs> it out. But if we put you and, and Dave together, you'll be ACDC. Oh, very good. Maybe we will do that. Uh, if there's a chance for us to do a live show in Melbourne this summer, as unlikely as it is at the moment, we'll be able to get Dave up on stage and do just that. Uh, Jeff, thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening. Have lovely weekends. We'll be back to do it all again on Tuesday. Cheerio. I had to go.